I'm author and athlete Brad Kearns. Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. Visit bradkearns.com for great resources on healthy eating, exercise, and lifestyle. And here we go with the show. Coming from Chinese culture, which is atheist culture, and then having my own spiritual transformation, especially two years ago when I you know, tried ketamine therapy, when I felt I broke through this veil and saw much greater and, and saw beyond. So that really transformed my perception of my existence. I want to protect muscle mm. over the expense of you know, hanging my hat and saying, oh, I did a four-day fast, because I agree with you, it's as much a mental exercise as a physical one. And so if you feel like you're really, like your mood is suffering, you don't feel good, break your fast. But I like your, you know, rule of thumb as far as what diet is good for you mm -hmm. is to see how you feel. Yep. I mean, that's really the bottom line. I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new zero-drop minimalist shoe with the distinctive five-toe design from my main man, Mark Sisson. Paluvas give you the most authentic barefoot style experience, but with sufficient cushioning so you can use them for all manner of daily movement, especially walking and many other fitness and athletic activities. Paluvas are also incredibly stylish, so you get a barefoot shoe that you're not embarrassed to wear around in daily life. It's been so cool to see the popularity of minimalist shoes grow over the recent years, but Paluvas are a step ahead of every other zero-drop wide-box shoe because of the critical feature of individual five-toe articulation, a separate slot for each of your toes. This allows for correct dynamic movement of the foot through the walking or running stride, which is impossible when your toes are encased into a single box, even a wide box. Well, you might know that minimalist shoes have faced controversy in recent years for causing injuries from inappropriate use. So here is the big picture mission. We want to get you walking in paluvas, living in your paluvas, going barefoot in your home or other safe areas as often as possible. Go ahead and use your specialized cushiony running shoes or your basketball shoes, work boots, high heels, things that you want to wear when you want to wear them, but wear your Paluvas as much as possible to reawaken the natural functionality of the human foot to stand, walk, run, and perform. Do you want to try a pair? I'm certain that when you put them on and walk around, you are going to quickly realize that these are the most comfortable, natural shoes that you've ever worn. They are designed to feel like you're, quote, walking barefoot on a putting green please visit paluva.com, that's P-E-L-U-V-A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Hi, listeners. Get ready for a fantastic long-form conversation with two powerhouse females in Dr. Joy Kong and Cynthia Thurlow. What a pleasure it was to connect with these ladies, and we sat down for a fireside-style three-way chat about all kinds of topics, and we really uh, went deep and pretty heavy and vulnerable and really sincere uh, personal stories that will inspire you and get you thinking, as well as covering the many important health topics of the day, especially honoring Cynthia's visit to Los Angeles 
and her promotion of her best-selling book, The Intermittent Fasting Transformation. Dr. Joy has been a guest on the podcast previously, and we just thought, hey, let's get together, let's turn on the camera, the microphone, and let's go to town. And that we did, and I'm so happy to uh, delve into this long-form style once in a while, because I think it's really valuable. So I know I'm asking for a lot of time to listen to this two-hour-plus podcast, but boy, it is really going to give you uh, some memorable insights and things to uh, reflect upon in your own life. And so I'll talk about some of the health topics we covered, but we also hear about Cynthia's uh, life-threatening health ordeal where she was in the hospital and uh, dealing with complications from an emergency appendectomy. Uh, The whole experience was a cause for mindset, career direction. Everything changed after that. Pretty powerful. Uh, Dr. Joy talks about her upbringing in China and the high pressure, the high expectations that she faced and how it's served her and driven her to great heights and achievements. But also, uh, it's something that we all can uh, relate to where we have to fight this daily battle to slow down and appreciate the simple pleasures of life as we doggedly pursue our peak performance goals. So we get some of that kind of stuff, and then we get into the nuts and bolts too. We spent a long time talking about the role of protein in the diet. Cynthia is a strong advocate for a protein-centric diet, as am I, in pursuit of the preeminent longevity goal of maintaining muscle mass, muscle strength throughout life. So we talk about some of the uh, disparate points of view, especially when it comes to longevity and some leading researchers and big voices talking about uh, being sure to minimize protein intake so you don't overstimulate growth factors and how that message has become uh, really controversial, distorted, and um, possibly misapplied in many cases, especially for healthy, fit, active people. Um, I talk about performing and recovering, man. That's what I'm all focused on now and will be for the rest of my life. So we spent a long time on protein. We talked about the various popular diets of today, uh, some compare and contrast, and uh, also keeping an eye out for the misinformation and the misappropriation of the the messaging today. Uh, Same with exercise and how we can kind of get out of hand and overdo it and burn out, especially when we combine fasting and exercise. So that is just a little tidbit, a little teaser of what we're going to get with Cynthia and Dr. Joy. Uh, If you haven't heard of Cynthia, she's a nurse practitioner, author of the best-selling book, The Intermittent Fasting Transformation. She had a viral talk on the TED platform that you will see a link in the show notes that really kick-started her career transformation from working in the medical field to being a podcaster, author, speaker. Um, Dr. Joy, you've introduced to her before. Hopefully you heard our previous show uh, where we talked about her amazing memoir called The Tiger of Beijing, and that is now being made into a movie. So, wow, watch out. Here we come. The tiger is on the prowl, and she's also the director of the Uplift Longevity Center, an expert in stem cell therapy. We talked about that on the previous show. And so you're going to get a lot of uh, voices, a lot of fun conversation. We really hit it off, us three. Here we go. So here we are in the living room or the office studio, Dr. Joy Kong, Cynthia Thurlow, traveling from across the country (laughs) to meet with us. And I am so honored to be here with these two high-powered ladies. And we decided we're going to talk about all kinds of things, especially health-related matters. But I love your your chit-chat starting out question about how you got here and especially transitioning from that previous career in the medical scene. So I'd love to know. Yeah, I tell everyone that 
my transitional path was not necessarily one I would encourage people to replicate because I went from being a practicing clinician in a busy cardiology group to literally taking a leap of faith and telling my husband one day, I was like, I can't write another prescription. I feel so constrained in this current medical model. And the only way to get out of this and do what I really want to do is to leave. And so without a business plan, literally without a business plan, I gave my notice. And on April 1st, 2016, I left clinical medicine and started my own business. And almost instantaneously, I had women coming to me that wanted to talk about exactly the things we were all dealing with. Like, you know, why you weren't sleeping, why you were having weird cravings, why you suddenly were weight loss resistant. And that grew into group programs and one-on-one work. And then a few years later, a colleague wanted to do a podcast and I reluctantly agreed. And then that grew into everyday wellness and then another podcast and more speaking opportunities. But I say all the time, I draw upon all my medical experience almost every day, but I now get to talk to people about what I think is most important, which is lifestyle. Yeah. Well, you had to do a lot of self-educating, going from cardiology to helping women with day-to-day problems. <laughs> so that, that, yeah, that's going to take a while. It definitely does. And it, what's interesting is, you know, life imitates art. So certainly for me, when I was in my early 40s, all of a sudden I was becoming that exact person. <laughs> and my GYN, the only thing that were offered to me was, okay, let's go on oral contraceptives. Let's put in an IUD. Let's do an ablation or let's just do a hysterectomy because you're done having kids. Jesus. And I was like, time Mutilation. Out. Yeah, exactly. I was, like, was that four out. choices? None yeah. of them sounded too good. No. Okay. And so I said, I think I'm, I think I'm good. And so that then started this kind of self exploration about perimenopause and this hmm. super sexy topic that not only are very few physicians and MPs and other providers trained in, but very few people are really shining a lot on how women are supposed to age in a way that allows them to have some dignity and not feel like they are, you know, they're effectively told, you know, this is just the way things are. Cause I heard that and I was so discouraged. I thought if I'm hearing that everyone else is hearing that. And so kind of changing the narrative so that people can age with dignity. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to. Women don't have to gain 30 pounds, be inflamed, and be miserable. Like, there are ways to navigate these these years and then into menopause without feeling like you're uh, like an alter ego of your former self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Joy, do you have any interest in this subject? In fact, during our podcast, I think you said... You got tired of writing prescriptions, and that's when you were, you know, uh, heading off into the longevity space. So, wow, the synergy yeah, here. I, but, I, you know, I think the biggest question is, why is it still such a disaster with all this great information and progress, both in the, the progressive medicine as well as just the mainstream medicine of going in those four choices, when clearly there's enough, you know, support for people taking a different route? Both of you are going to have to answer this because you're, you're working hard every day to try to change it. But it's kind of ridiculous how these, I guess, the pharmaceutical industry and the powers that be are vested in keeping people on this line. But I can't think of any other good reasons. Yeah, I feel like we're kind of at a time of war almost mm. fighting against the juggernaut that's been the traditional, the, the whole medical practice since the early 1900s. So there's this shift and almost violent shift even though people may not realize it but there has been integrated doctors who have died um, mysteriously mm-hmm. and I mean look at what happened recently with this you know infection and how di- how much is dividing the population so I think we're at a pretty critical juncture where there's a shift and the establishment really doesn't 
want this shift to happen because they were doing pretty well by、mm. keeping people sick. And who are we to come along all of a sudden getting people off medications or preventing them from ever getting on medications? That's very bad for business. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we have to,、um, you know, kind of be the champion. But I think because the masses are waking up, it's really interesting. I think there's a shift in consciousness that people are waking up, and this has become a grassroots movement. Because when I first came to this country 30 years ago. If I had mentioned acupuncture, people would look at me sideways. They would think that's, you know, that's pretty weird. And then, you know, 15 years later, it's covered by insurance.、Mm. So there's a this huge shift that's happening.、Um, I don't think the medical giant、uh, it's going to be able to stop it. You know, that's that's what's funny. They're trying to stop it, but they can't. Yeah, I think in a lot of levels, you know, traditionally trained allopathic providers were taught to address. Symptoms. That's how we're、mm-hmm. trained. The symptoms. Then there's you know、uh, you know algorithms about how specifically to address chest pain, shortness、mm-hmm. of breath, you know vaginal bleeding, whatever it is that's going on, versus a functional, more integrative approach, which is what I think we both really embrace, and really looking at individuals as the, as bio individuals, really looking at the contributions of lifestyle.、Um, obviously, you know we all speak to high quality sleep, nutrition, etc. But that's really that's not what we get reimbursed for, you know. If you're in a traditional <laughs> model, so there's no it, there's this perception that there's no value there. In、mm. fact, I had、um, several colleagues, and and everyone was very supportive of my desire to talk about nutrition. But they were like, "Oh, this is our nurse practitioner, and she really likes to talk about food." And it was always with that kind of like、yeah. snarky. And I said, "It all starts with food. Like so much of what we're addressing in cardiology, as one example, is a byproduct of, you know." Dysfunction in people's personal lives. Like I would have patients; they were like 35 years old. They're on three meds for high blood pressure. They're on diabetes and cholesterol medications. And I'm like, if I could get you to stop smoking, if I could get you to move your body, if I could get you to eat lower carb and more protein and sleep, you might not need all these things. And they're like, no, no, just give me the pill. I don't、mm. want to change. And、yeah. so we've we've kind of created this perfect storm where we are a very metabolically unhealthy population. We are potentiating, and it's certainly the the pandemic、uh, has not helped metabolic health. And so, you know, I agree with you that we're seeing emerging voices that are coming out and speaking against this kind of traditional model and saying like we can exist in the same space, but we need to do a better job with prevention. We need to do a better job with chronic disease management. You know, if there's an emergency or an urgency. Allopathic medicine is your person or your entity. Thumbs up. I have benefited from that. We got some appendixes yes, removed right <laughs> here. Thank you、yes. to those surgeons. Exactly. But, exactly. It, it does seem like there's two things here. It's battling against the, the the mighty beast and all the money and all that, and then there's that personal responsibility aspect, which, you know, that was Mark Sisson's opening motto of his blog, and however many years ago, that it's up to us to take personal responsibility for our health and. That seems like we're not getting a good grade in、uh, Western life here. On that note, too, we're getting a C minus or something. It's like everyone knows about sleep. Everyone knows、mm-hmm. that junk food's bad for you, and for some reason,、um, I feel like you know tremendous fear and desperation that I don't want to suffer and decline and have people taking care of me and not remember the names of these people that are taking care of me. So I'm like super motivated just on that alone. Forget about a high jump competition that I think I'm going to win pretty soon, but what? Where's the psychology of the the average person 
that is popping these, what's the average number of subscriptions? I think it's um, 17 or 13. We used to have The contests. average American has 17. Yeah. I have zero, so now it's actually 17 point something. I don't know mm -hmm. about you guys, but maybe <laughs> everyone under 17, thumbs up. But what a disaster. And um, are they thinking about anything or they just don't give a crap and they want their personal freedom and their mobile device and so I think it's a degree of cognitive dissonance I, I don't think it's <laughs> that people don't per se want to make better choices I think they're lost they don't get good guidance when they go see their healthcare provider mm. there's so much misinformation online that is propagated by social media influencers sometimes the media sometimes well-meaning well-meaning healthcare practitioners um, but but I think on a lot of levels that We've made it hard for people to make changes. I think if you're intrinsically motivated, yes, you can make those shifts. But I think the average person needs a lot of support, a lot more than they get in a five or ten minute office visit. And you know, the other thing is that a lot of these functional integrative medicine practices can be cost prohibitive for like everyone. Um, and that's something that I feel like I have to be honest. Like I'm fortunate, we are all fortunate that we can, you know, we have the ability to pay for those kinds of services, but not everyone does. Because people reach out to me online all the time. They're like, oh, I can't afford this or I can't afford that. And I'm like, I understand, mm -hmm. but you could right now do like these three things that could have a huge net impact on your life while you're figuring out how to find a practitioner that's more aligned with what you need. Because they are out there. It's just trying to find them. Yeah, you can't afford to eat at the highest level of sophistication and recommendation, but I'm also going to call BS on a lot of that because we're mm -hmm. going to go look at your receipts for your pizza deliveries choices. and you know, the stuff that's in your discretionary Uber income. Eats. But working within a lack of affordability of some of the stuff that's touted by um, seems like there's a lot of potential there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't agree with, because I've treated a lot of psychiatric patients who are you know, in the indigent population. And they will come to me saying, I can't afford to eat healthy. I said, I lived in San Francisco and I spent $60 a month on my food and I ate super healthy. Mm. So yes, you can, you just have to pick the right food. You don't go buy McDonald's and you know, buy donuts. You, you, you pick, you have to be smart about it, but don't tell me that you can't afford it. So, <laughs> yeah. Don't get her started. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's, it's really, it's choices. So mm -hmm. that's the big thing. Like we say all the time, we have teenage boys. And so we're very, we're a very protein centric family. Mm. And I have my 17 year old who's six feet tall can eat a massive amount of protein in a sitting. And I just say there are choices we make as a family to prioritize our nutrition over other things. And so people sometimes are surprised. I'm like, no, no, this is just what we prioritize. And so, you know, when, when you're right, when you start talking to patients or clients and they start identifying, yeah, I'm doing Uber Eats and, oh, yeah, I mean, I spend $300 a, a weekend on the, in the bar and I'm doing, you know, a lot of these other things. It's like just collectively figuring out, like, let's be real about where our money goes. <laughs> like, even if you just trend your spending habits for a month, mm. you might be very surprised to know that there are things that you can changes you can make that will will enhance your healthy living. And then we have the challenges, and I'd like to go back to that uh, misinformation you mentioned, which are the ones that really bug you the most, where these well-meaning people are dispensing the information that they deeply believe in, and it could be um, less than optimal by other people's opinion. And that's gonna lead to another question where these forks in the roads are here now, 
and uh, some people don't trust stem cells and think it's uh, uh, woo-woo, and then other people have had complete life transformation. Tony Robbins, one of them, where he couldn't lift his shoulder, whatever, all these amazing stories. And so, like, we're rolling the dice and betting our lives on whether plant-based is the way to go or whether the animal-based is the way to go, and those are disparate along with many other things. But what are some of the, the hot ones that you see that, that bug you and you, you're trying to fight back against? I, I would say for me personally, it, it's the advice that I was trained in was mm. that you meal frequency and snacks, you, you eat frequently to stabilize your metabolism and your blood sugar. I would say that's probably number one. And then vilifying fat. Mm-hmm. I think that has created a lot of misinformation and to the point where I'm still telling my 76 year old mother that yes, you can have some avocado and some nuts. It is not going to make you gain a ton of weight, but if you keep eating these inferior fats, that is a like seed oils that can be problematic. I would say that and you know the vilification of you know protein. Everyone's more often than not, what I see is people eat too many of the wrong types of carbs, mm-hmm. too much of the toxic seed oils, and not enough protein, and so that can be the perfect storm for a lot of. I want to ask you health. about the protein because mm-hmm. people are, are are confused. How much protein do I really need? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so there, there's wide variations. So how some people think we're over proteined, you know, like we're just like overconsumption. Um, some very highly some, trained, some highly respected people. Some people say you gotta hit, you know, 120, 150 grams of protein. So what, what, what's your, um, your, your, your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I am of the belief system that we are designed to continue to eat. Well, first and foremost, as we get older, our protein intake needs actually increase because we don't break down and assimilate protein as readily as we do as younger people. So I come from the camp that you want at least 100 grams of protein a day. Mm. Um, largely because we are in, our protein needs increase, but also this whole concept of muscle protein synthesis, how important muscle is. Muscle is the organ of longevity. The more muscle mass we maintain, the more insulin sensitive we are. And so from my perspective, I really, really, really encourage my patients and clients to be hitting those protein macros. Now, the average woman that I work with is probably consuming 40 grams of protein a day. So that's a, that's a huge Is that difference. a health conscious person that's coming to you typically? They just don't know. But I mean, you're not talking about someone off the street. You're, so, you're talking about someone that's hired a yes. coach and is really caring yes. about their diet yes. before seeing you. And so they're having their salad, their fasting period, their uh, Their teeny tiny snack piece of chicken. Of, <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Their protein bar, their protein shake. Mm. Uh, so I think there's a lot of misinformation. And so, obviously, sorry, I was going to say, looking at the longevity experts, David Sinclair, Walter Longo, obviously they are talking about very small amounts of protein. But I always say the people that I follow, lean into their research and really talk to um, thoughtfully, they are the kinds of musculature and health that I want to aspire to be. So do I want to just be skinny? No. <laughs> well, what about looking at cent- centenarians? Uh, you know, how much, because obviously they've made it, you know, through a long period of time with good mentation and good physical capabilities. You know, they may not be as muscular as you, what you would like, but um, they're living a good life. So they don't overconsume protein, right? I mean, they consume a very moderate amount. Well, I think it's a, it's a twofold issue. They're also typically very they're very um, mobile and they're very active. They're probably getting enough sleep. They're probably managing their stress, all of which can be very impactful. I think I come from the, from the perspective that the research that I'm familiar with and that I'm well vested in really encourages people to lean into that protein intake. 
Um, I, I think that we live in a highly kind of toxic world in terms of, you know, the way that my grandparents ate food and the way they lived is very different than my parents and my generation and my kids' generation. And so really with the understanding that we have most people that are growing up now are so metabolically unhealthy that they're already setting themselves up. I mean, you've got rampant amounts of insulin resistance and diabetes in young children, you know, at rates that we didn't see even 20, 25 years ago. So from my perspective, I think that the whole piece of protein is really an important one. It helps with satiety, helps to, you know, with hormone production, and just really understanding that for each one of us, it's, it's fine-tuning what we're doing. It doesn't mean that you go from eating 40 grams to 100. It may be that you diligently work towards just eating more protein with your meal. So you're going to help with satiety. And the other thing that's really interesting, there's a lot of emerging research for women in menopause that if they're not hitting, an, hitting this threshold for muscle protein synthesis, their body will be looking for them to get more calories in, and it's going to come <laughs> at the expense of carbohydrates and fat. So a lot of the women, when I'm working with them, and they're saying, you know, when, when you start restructuring your macros, restructuring your protein, fat, and carbohydrate intake, they're stunned. They're like, oh, there's no, I don't, I don't want to eat after dinner anymore. I'm not looking for mm. snacks. I'm not looking for sugary foods. And a lot of it's because they just don't hit those mechanisms, you know, specific hormonal mechanisms in the body when they're hitting those protein macros. So I encourage people to at least experiment, to be open-minded um, to the possibility that they're not eating enough of protein. I find even when I travel, I have to struggle with that. Like this morning, um, I had an omelet and I had two pieces of sausage and then there was a charcuterie thing that I was, I ate some of that and I was like just hoping to hit like 40 grams of protein in mm. a meal just to kind of feel satiated till I eat dinner. Mm. Talk about that protein leverage theory that you're hinting at, really fascinating where the, the brain um, is, is really knows about protein needs and will we'll desperately look for them. Yeah, and it, it's, it's, interesting. it's interesting because there's this complex in a relationship, and I can really just speak to women, between this follicular stimulating hormone and low estradiol, so low estrogen levels, that's part of when this muscle protein synthesis issue becomes an even larger issue for menopausal women. Like as women are getting closer to the 12 months without a menstrual cycle, they are at greater risk for putting on more adipose tissue, for being less metabolically flexible. And this paper, which I can pull out for you guys if you want me to, I don't have it with me, but I have it at home, um, really shows this complex in a relationship. That's why it's so important to be aiming for, you know, 40 to 50 grams of protein with your meals because your body is desperately looking to help maintain, tries trying to maintain muscle because sarcopenia is a real issue. It's not a question of if but when unless you're working diligently against it. And I see far too many women who are just fixated on being a certain size or a certain weight at the expense of maintaining muscle mm. mass. Mm. And, is there um, any statistics about protein intake, high protein intake and longevity, like overall long-term health? Not that I can pull off like the top of my head right now, but I do have I do have quite a bit at home, um, and I think it's if you look at the big longevity researchers, if you look at David Sinclair, you look at Walter Longo, they talk about low protein. They're eating like one meal a day. They're doing mm -hmm. a lot of prolonged fasts, and this is something even during the launch of the book this year, a couple podcasters would ask me like, which camp are you in? Mm -hmm. And I said I'm all about longevity, but I'll be honest with you, <laughs> not at the expense of losing muscle mass. Because losing muscle mass to me is much more important because that's going to help me maintain insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a greater concern. And so I always say respectfully, because I have great respect and reverence mm -hmm. for both of them, I just say I'm glad that they're doing the research. But if you only eat one meal a day, you're not getting enough 
protein in, unless you're a unicorn, and we have a unicorn friend, you know mm -hmm. who I'm alluding to, we, it's a massive amount of protein in a short window. But most people just can't get 100 grams of protein in one meal. That's really un unusual. Yeah, and the, the, the average listener who's not living and breathing this stuff can get very confused, even with the last several minutes of conversation. The most highly respected people are saying, to get to that finish line, you need to uh, have your lentil soup and meditate and shuffle through the garden until you're 108. And I'm also thinking there's another layer here of the quality of life and Absolutely. what you're doing. And if you want to be out there hiking and stand-up paddling and doing high jumping and being active and energetic, I don't think it's in dispute that muscle mass and muscle strength is going to be your key to hanging in there a long time rather than succumbing to sarcopenia, which is, it's a disease, it's a de definition, but it's the norm. So like we have the norm of sarcopenia mm -hmm. and then people who are outliers, unicorn, whatever, that are keeping the muscle mass on rather than spinning down, in, down the drain. So you asked a great question, which no one knows mm -hmm. the answer to, which is who's going to Who's going to beat Jean Calment's record? Jean Calment lived to be 122. She died in 1997, oh a French woman. I think it's going to be me. That's why my <laughs> password and my, my, my number is 123. It's as easy as 123. That's, that's going to be the new record, 123. Um, but I want to get there through um, this wonderful, amazing, active, energetic life rather than seeing how long I can shuffle through the garden and sit on the meditation cushion for two hours every morning and have my lentil soup for my one meal a day. That aside, um, to try to sort through this confusion, if we can hit this point a, a little further, um, could it be that a lot of the boilerplate of the life's work of these great scientists and things like that are coming from studies of a sorry-ass, inactive, junk food-eating population? Because we're going back to the lipid hypothesis of heart disease as well, where it's like, that cholesterol, you, you're eating too many eggs, you're going to get a heart attack. That's not untrue that it's... that. This, this could be contributing along with the pile of processed carbs you eat every day. So this, this protein argument that you want to minimize that so you don't overstimulate mTOR and these growth factors seems to me that um, let's find some healthy athletic females at 50, 60, 70, 80 and look at their lifestyle and what they're doing and how much protein they're consuming if they're keeping their muscle mass on. Same with, same with males. Yeah. <laughs> well, Besides it, that, there's no dispute or disagreement in the scene. Yet. Well, it, and it's interesting. So yesterday, I, the, the city that I live in now, there's no direct flights anywhere. So I had to fly to Chicago. And of course, there was an icing issue. And so the flight didn't take off when it was supposed to. And I had a very tight connection. So needless to say, we land in Chicago 30 minutes late. Well, actually an hour late. My plane is boarded. It is in two terminals over. And this there were five of us. We sprinted a mile and a quarter. Now, a mile and a quarter sprinting without luggage is probably not all that bad. But I had luggage. I had a heavy overpacked bag. I had a bigger bag than you see over there. <laughs> and when I tell you I was the last person on the plane, I made it on the plane. And I was the last person on the plane. I remember thinking, what do most average mm -hmm. Americans do? They miss their flights. Mm -hmm. Because I, my chest was burning because I was really a full-on-out sprint as gracefully as I could with some bags. <laughs> and I kept reminding myself, what is the average person doing? I was the last person on the plane. Mm -hmm. They held the plane for us five schmucks to make it over two terminals. But understand, the average American would not have been capable of doing that. And I'm 51. I am not a spring chicken. 
but it is definitely one of those things I think about every day. I want to maintain my health mm -hmm. because I want to be able to get off the toilet. I want to be able to sprint if I ever have to do that again. I want to be able to have a high quality of life because I'm sure for all of us, our experiences, you see a lot of people who have not had a high quality of life. I saw 50 year olds that couldn't get off a bedside commode or couldn't, you know, couldn't walk a mile, let alone run a mile. And so you just start to understand that that quality of life piece is really important, irrespective of where we are in time and space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do have patients who struggle with the, the, the protein intake. You know, they're like, how am I going to cram, you know, with my body weight, I'm going to have to cram in, you know, 150 grams of, of protein every day. And it's, it's very challenging. It is. And that's and, why I would say like 100 grams, like work towards 100. Like I say, don't stress about one gram per pound of ideal body weight. Like mm. just work towards 100. And if I say that, then people kind of go, okay, like maybe I can do that over time. So just give people an idea, like a little piece of serving size steak in a restaurant, how many grams is a protein is that? Um, typically, if you've got an eight ounce steak, it could be over 50 grams. So okay. that's what people don't realize is that it adds up. Um, and you can always ask for more protein. Like I'm the person in the restaurant that's like, oh, uh, this is not a protein on my <laughs> salad. Can I have some shrimp? Can I have some steak? Can I have some chicken? Granted, you pay for it, but you're gonna get closer to that threshold. And depending on the individual, like I have two large boluses, that sounds terrible, large boluses of protein a day. Sounds and that's so how scientific. I, I know. And that's, <laughs> how, and that's how I hit 100 grams. But do I have days where I have less? Yes. Yeah, some days if I'm traveling, it gets more challenging. I had them send me two burgers last night. I was like, okay, it's a third mm -hmm. of a pound, send me two, and that'll be enough. And the guy was like, no bun, nope, no cheese, mm -hmm. nope, just send me the burgers and a salad and I'm good. But I do agree with you, and it can be daunting when people are trying to make those changes. When they are, they're so they're so under proteined and under muscled that it's mm -hmm. overwhelming to think about how they go about doing that. And the other thing is, as we are going through andropause and menopause, it becomes more challenging for people to maintain muscle mass. And so you do work at a little bit of a hormonal disadvantage. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but you have to work a little harder at it than you did maybe in your twenties and thirties. Yeah, you got parallel tracks now. We need to eat more protein, and then we need to go use our muscles so that we can utilize the protein. Yeah. But then you're also an expert in intermittent fasting, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to combine intermittent fasting <laughs> with adequate protein intake, you're it's, really juggling. Yeah, it definitely is. And that's why I'm not a fan of lots of prolonged fasting, especially mm -hmm. for lean people. And there are plenty of them because you start to worry about, you know, breaking down what muscle mass you do have, which is why I personally don't fast for any prolonged amount of time. My last big fast was in 2019 and mm -hmm. I'll Never have another. Was that uh, 17 days or something? <gasps> that was 13 days yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. Oh, oh, you not on purpose. If we put it that way. Uh, so, so I, I jokingly say I will never do another long fast because that cured me of any desire to ever to ever go through that. But I think it's it, it kind of really speaks to the fact that we all struggle with trying to get enough protein, especially if you're in a constrained feeding window. That's why I'm not a fan of OMAD as a sustained strategy. I think that you know most people need two boluses of protein in a feeding window, and so whether that's a six hour, an eight hour, or a 12 hour, depending on the individual, it's really working around those constraints and understanding that that's going to increase the likelihood you can meet those those thresholds. And and the other thing is, you know, protein and healthy fats can go together in a in a protein. You could have a ribeye steak, you'd have a piece of salmon. People worry a lot about healthy fats and I'm like, listen, they're in a lot of the protein that you're mm. eating already. So it's not like you have this massive piece of salmon and then you need half an avocado. No. Mm -hmm. Um but it's the carbohydrates that I think are most confusing for most people. They're like, I don't know what to eat. I don't know if I should be low carb, high carb. 
which carbs are good, which ones are bad. And I think a lot of that's dependent on your insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a whole conversation about the, the carbs. So Brad has changed his approach <laughs> from very low carb to uh, incorporating yeah. a lot of carbs. And I see like two camps of people who are doing really well, which is the high carb, low fat, and hmm. the low fat, high carb. No, the, 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 we the high you. protein, we the high protein, high fat. Yeah, yeah. very low carb. So yeah. like a keto type uh, approach. Yeah, where versus a complete they're, plant they're, based. They're trying to be fat fueled, and then we have you know people on the other side, I guess. Um, high carb and then watching their fat would be a characterization of vegan vegetarian perhaps yeah and it, all by comparison and it is challenging so which camp you know would you fit in right like <laughs> it's not a big person, deal we're just betting our life on it again yeah you know for a patient who just you know going on regular you know american diet and then for them to be facing should i try the the high carb because some people do really well high carb very low fat but then some people are really yeah. great you know doing mm -hmm. what you know Keto-ish diet. I'm so worked up about this. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in with a big picture answer here because um, I I interact with real people who are not living and breathing health and fitness and diet, and I think we can't even start talking about any of it until you get that crap out of your diet mm. and start choosing nutritious foods, and then perhaps you can thrive with what I call a super high risk diet, which would be vegan, plant based. I mean. People are doing it, they're making documentaries about it, whatever, uh, but I'm going to say it's high risk because you're excluding the foods that have mm -hmm. served human evolution for two and a half million years, and people are thriving with strict keto, strict carnivore, whatever, because they are getting a nutrient-dense choice of foods, but as long as the processed foods are out of it, particularly the seed oils, then we can start to converse and figure out how to optimize. But I think it takes me back one to um, this, this concern with insufficient protein intake. Would a, uh, a person eating an average Western diet with a lot of processed foods, are they at risk or is this mainly a challenge for people who have already cleaned up their act and are having the salads and the kale smoothies and the, the, the little snacks of a handful of walnuts and not, not trying to just slam um, fast food or is, is kind of everyone at risk? I think everyone's at risk. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, if you're consuming highly processed, hyperpalatable foods that have got sugar and fat. corn syrup yeah. and, you know, this delectable, I say delectable in air quotes, delectable, you know, toxic stew, um, that's a much more pro-inflammatory diet. But the people that are over-consuming, and I, I love plants, let me be very clear, I love plants, I eat salad almost every day, I eat lots of vegetables, I love vegetables, but if you're, if you're having a diet that's chronically devoid of protein, you're, you're putting yourself at great risk. And I say this with love and reverence because I have a lot of friends who still, you know, they, they want, they're going to live and die by that kale smoothie, that mm. celery juice, those oxalate, you know, the oxalate kind of predominant <laughs> foods. And then the they're wondering. The oxalate smoothie yeah, on the menu. Yeah, the, the toxic oxalate smoothie. And it's like, it goes back to bioindividuality. Like what works for you and your body? Yeah. And that can change year to year. Like certainly after being in the hospital for 13 days, I was mm. full carnivore for almost nine months because that was the only thing my digestive system could tolerate. <sighs> And then it was 18 months cause I, till I could start having my beloved Brussels sprout. So mm. the point of why I'm sharing this is mm. I think both, you know, if you eat a highly processed hyperpalatable diet or if you eat a, 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 a clean, I mean, maybe a cleaner diet, I think many people do well with vegetarian, vegan for a short period of time if they're transitioning from a more standard <laughs> American diet because they're cleaning up the crap, much to your point. They're getting the junky processed foods out of their 
their lives. By the same token, over time, you know, that much that much of a diet that's devoid of protein can be problematic as well. And it's uh, it's tough because you don't have these overt symptoms. Extreme protein deficiency, if you're doing some freak 40-day cleanse, your hair's going to fall out, you're going to get your gums lining and all these terrible things and feel get emaciated and have intense cravings for protein foods. But like, if you're, if you're hovering at that 80% of optimal, you're just going to be someone who gets a little soft over time and, and recovers in 72 hours instead of 48 and all those kind of things. Well, I think a lot of people have just gotten accustomed to feeling poorly like that's their norm that's where they hover and I think it starts for a lot of women north of 35 you know as they're got the as these hormonal fluctuations are starting less progesterone from the ovaries their sleep goes south all of a sudden they're less stress resilient they're wondering why they're you know waking up in the middle of the night why they're not waking up rested they've got weird cravings they're weight loss resistant Hmm. and so all these things start to happen and it becomes kind of subtle uh, and, and that's kind of the prelude so I see a lot of women in perimenopause starting to get stuck and they go to their healthcare practitioner and they're like oh it's just you know it's just a function of aging you know mm-hmm. weight loss weight gain mm-hmm. is a function of aging and i always cried bs you know mm-hmm. there's so many other ways to look around this i'm not sure if in your practice you see a lot of those types of i like to think of them as a vulnerable time in a woman's mm-hmm. life when you know maybe conventional medicine is missing opportunities to help support women in different ways yeah people struggle a lot they do everything right they think that they, they eat a good diet, and probably a lot of them do, and they exercise you know, almost daily, and then they just couldn't shed the last 10, 15 pounds. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Which bring me to, um, you know, I, I want to ask you, because you are a proponent that men and women fast differently, mm-hmm. and you really should have a different, different approach. And why do you think that is? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I mean, men and women have different levels of hormones, different cycles of hormones. So men, obviously, and menopausal women don't have as much hormonal flux day to day, whereas cycling women, weeks, women under the age of 35, so peak fertile years, have a menstrual cycle every month. They've got, you know, fluctuations in estrogen and testosterone and progesterone throughout their cycle. It allows them to be more flexible with flexing into intermittent fasting and different types of you know, ketogenic or low-carb diets and exercise at certain times during their cycle, perimenopausal women are special. You know, We are less stress resilient, so all of a sudden, we can't tolerate the same levels of intense exercise. We can't tolerate not getting enough sleep. We maybe are much more sensitive to inflammatory foods. This is a time when women, I start suggesting like, you know, is the alcohol serving you? How do you do <laughs> when you drink alcohol? This becomes kind of a very kind of touchy subject for many people, Um, The last two and a half, almost three years, people have been drinking a whole lot more. Mm. And so saying to women, like, all of a sudden, let's pull the Band-Aid off and see if, is alcohol eroding your sleep? Is that Mm. what's driving, you know, some degree of estrogen detoxification issues? All of a sudden, you're weight loss resistant. Is it dairy? Is it, and especially cow milk dairy, is it gluten? Is it grains? What's going on with that? And so much to to the point you were making, I do believe that when women still have a menstrual cycle, they have to fast for their cycle. So there's a time in the cycle to fast during a follicular phase, a time to stop fasting closer to when you're getting ready to menstruate in the luteal phase. Um, And then when women transition into menopause, as long as sleep and stress and anti-inflammatory nutrition and the right types of exercise are dialed in, they can really have tremendous success without concerns about where am I in my menstrual cycle, which Mm. for a lot of people is a source of stress. Uh, maybe not for the people that are on oral contraceptives because they don't even have like a real menstrual cycle. But for me, I, I do encourage women under the age of 35 to be cautious with fasting. 
you know, perimenopausal women, women north of 35, before, men's, before they go through menopause, have a little bit more flexibility, but they have to lean into the lifestyle piece quite a bit. What about the menopausal, <laughs> the, uh, the rest of the crowd? So, so andropause, you know, men in general, men go through, go through andropause. But I think when we're looking at menopausal women, yeah, exactly. My husband Some denies men. the same thing. He's like, I don't, I'm not going through andropause. It ain't happening. Yeah, exactly. Not on my watch. No thanks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want that. But I think when I'm looking at menopausal women, it's really, are they getting enough sleep? Are they managing their stress? Are they consuming anti-inflammatory nutrition, really leaning into the protein and balancing their carbohydrates and healthy fats? And then are they lifting weights? Because I'm going to go back to the same thing I was saying earlier. Sarcopenia is not a question of if, but when. And mm. it's really important to be maintaining muscle mass. So stop doing the chronic cardio, mm. lift some weights, do some yoga, you know, walk quite a bit. All those things are, are much more beneficial for women in menopause. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. See, I mean, I, I do Zumba dance, you know, sometimes, and it's a it's a very overweight population mm -hmm. of these women. Sometimes these these women are there every day, if not taking two classes, you know, a day, but they are not in great shape, and all that <laughs> cardio is not helping very much, and. Um, yeah, I, I think it's promoting a loss of muscle mass mm -hmm. and storing fat. That's the signaling that's sent to the brain because that's how you get through two classes a day, every day, or whatever a chronic exercise pattern. And so that's, you know, that's getting us into the misinformation on the fitness side as well as the diet side. And that's the most heartbreaking thing. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, all y'all who are smoking and sitting on your couch, your life expectancy just dropped another year, but I know you don't give a crap, so carry on. And, and <laughs> sorry to in interrupt your, uh, your Netflix streaming experience, but <laughs> the people who are doing the best they can, boy, that's when we can really fight hard to, to bring an awakening. And before we leave the protein, I'll say one more thing. Like, if you're still not sold yet and you're concerned about eating too much protein, go ahead and do it because the satiety level of having six eggs instead of three or two steaks or two and a half steaks, you're going to get to this point where you're like, I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore. I'm fully satisfied. And that might even be optimal, but it's going to be really difficult, maybe impossible to go and exceed and be this excess protein person that's going to die of cancer or am I off base? I mean, I can eat six eggs, no problem. But if I tried 10, like Andrew at Power Project, I might feel like, yeah, 10's a lot every day. Yeah, I, I could not. I think my max in a sitting is six. I had three in my omelet this morning because I had to beg for three. They were like, we'll give you two. I'm like, can I have a oh, third? Wow. Yeah, I was I'll like pay pushing extra. It. Can you give me more sauce? I mean, it was like it became this negotiation process to try to get. I was like, I'm trying to hit 40 grams of protein. The guy was <laughs> like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm just trying to explain my pathology of why I'm trying to get things in this way. But I think for a lot of people... It's with the understanding that, you know, when we're in this position where we have opportunities to lean into protein, we should probably take it. And I think for many people, like I mentioned earlier, if women aren't getting enough protein, their bodies are going to be looking for the additional macronutrients. And generally, you're going to be getting them from highly processed, hyperpalatable carbs. That's why the bag of chips, the bowl of ice cream, all those things become very tempting in the evening because your body is looking for more food mm -hmm. that you haven't consumed during your day. Yeah, I remember yesterday going to a restaurant and because my protein didn't come on quick enough, there's a basket of delicious sourdough bread and I I ate them, at least I put some butter on it, but uh, but boy, I did not feel that great, you know, 
a couple hours later, you just I just felt like I was just not not at my level, you know, at dipping in my energy and and my uh, you know just sense of feeling good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the price to pay. So, what are your thoughts on on the carbs? I'm not anti-carb. I think carbs are largely driven by insulin sensitivity. So if I have someone who's metabolically healthy, 45, 50, 55 years old, we talk about carb cycling. We talk about high quality carbohydrates. So you're getting your carbs from root vegetables, low glycemic berries, green leafy vegetables, things like that, as opposed to processed carbs. Like as delicious as bread is, and I totally get it. I mean, I I would like, I'm like, my mouth is salivating (laughs) thinking about some really good gluten-free sourdough bread. But... With that being said, I think the average person doesn't really understand why those whole food sources are so helpful. Like a sweet potato, you can't eat too many sweet potatoes. You're going to get to a point where there's so much fiber, Mm. your body's going to go, I've had enough, or whether it's Mm. squash or root vegetable. Mm -hmm. So I think it's driven by multiple things. So are you insulin sensitive? You're metabolically unhealthy. I'm going to encourage you to eat lower carbohydrate. Mm. And lower carbohydrate, given the average American consumes 200 to 300 grams of carbs a day, we're looking at under 100 as a starting point. And for many people, they don't realize that they're drinking their carbs, which is one of the worst things you can do. If you're familiar with Dr. Rick Johnson's work with fructose, he talks about why fructose is so problematic and really why we shouldn't be drinking um, why we shouldn't be drinking, you know, fructose-laden beverages. It goes directly to our liver, gets stored there, and many of the people who are metabolically unhealthy also have NOFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And so really helping people understand what's their carbohydrate threshold, how physically active are they. If they're lifting heavy weights and they're depleting their glycogen stores when they're lifting, that's different than the couch potato who's now, I'm now telling them, okay, we're going to rip the Band-Aid off. I don't want you to snack anymore. I want you to eat more protein and, oh, let's watch your carbs. Can you have a sweet potato instead of a bowl of rice? Mm. Can you have that root vegetable instead of processed pasta? You know, can you have um, some blueberries instead of having five bananas? I had a diabetic patient who ate six a day, and I'm like, is it any wonder his diabetes is out of control? Um, but really helping people understand there's the hierarchy of carbohydrates. I'm not anti-carb. Um, I myself do better with a lower carb lifestyle, but that's me personally. And I'll up, I'll cycle up my carbs on days I lift heavy and cycle them back down just depending on how I feel. But I think it's really as bio-individual as that. Like, mm-hmm. are you insulin sensitive? Are you mm-hmm. physically active? What makes you feel good? There are some genetic variants where people don't tolerate being really low carb. And I think that's important because, unfortunately, I think there's this misnomer that every obese woman needs to be on a ketogenic diet. Well, mm. how do you metabolize your fat? If you're eating a higher fat, lower protein, lower carb diet, you might not feel good. And so really understanding that some genetics play a role as well as just bioindividuality in general. But I'm not anti-carb. I just think quality is important. And, and with, with bioindividuality, we're also talking about the bioindividuality if you're getting your ass off the couch or not and that's 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 the main one versus oh my ancestry is from uh, england and ireland and so uh, all this stuff that people are trying to scrutinize it's like as dr kate shanahan says open up those suitcases when your glycogen suitcases are open even a slurpee is going to go right into Mm -hmm. glycogen storage so Jack, your kid, or Jack, my kid, after they're done doing their crazy workouts or three-hour basketball practice, they can go have a Slurpee and a sweet potato and a bowl of rice and then another bowl of rice while the sweet potato's cooling off and then the other one comes out of the oven. (laughs) And um, again, with carbs, I think we've made a mistake of like grouping it all together in in the the pursuit of, uh, uh, you know, 
branded diets and so forth and um, there's a huge distinction so much so that perhaps a lot of the negative effects are, uh, of people saying that you know I do better when my carbs are here and even better here and even better there it's because we're, we're mixing in stuff that's difficult to digest well and I think people can be rigidly dogmatic like if it worked for me it means it works for everyone and so I always say to people I don't eat the that's same. That's not true, except yeah. for stuff that works for me. Right. Exactly. Oh, I mean, wait. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but I think it's important to experiment. Like, see right, how do you feel? Yeah. Like, track your macros for a while. How, many, how much are you consuming? I think when I ask women to track their protein, it's they never eat enough, and then they're overeating their carbs, and they don't realize it. Like, mm-hmm. they don't realize that mm-hmm. it's not, you know, it's not entirely benign if they're having five pieces of tropical fruit a day. I'm like, okay. If we're trying to change body composition, we're trying to get more metabolically healthy, if you're not, we really have to be cognizant of how these choices impact what's going on with us. And one of my favorite ways, I'm not sure if you use this with your patients, continuous glucose monitors or glucometers. Because I'm like, I'll say to people, you know, you're falling asleep after your meal and you're telling Mm. me you're weight loss resistant. I'm like, well, what's going on? And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, my blood sugar went up 50 points when I had that bowl of rice. I'm like, bingo. So just understanding that there's a threshold of, you know, glucose variability that I'm comfortable with and then mm-hmm. others that I'm not. And I'm pretty outspoken about it. I'm like, if you eat a bolus of carbohydrates and your blood sugar goes up 50 points, it's too many carbs. Mm-hmm. So let's get real. Let's more protein, maybe add some fats, you know, change like glucose goddess. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah, this revolution. Probably. I've been I've been sharing her resource of a book and just saying, well, maybe we need to change the order in what you're eating. Like maybe start with some fiber first and then you have your protein and then maybe you have your carbohydrates and track then. So there's a lot of moving variables, but I do think glucometers and continuous glucose monitors are a really great way to figure out like that bioindividuality piece beyond just, oh, that's what I want to eat because I get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was really comfortable and happy with my low-carb diet until Brad had to talk about <laughs> cortisol and stress and and then you you change your dietary approach yeah i'm on a a seven month experiment that's probably going to be sustained uh forever and i do appreciate that bio individuality um but you know i think we're all obligated to to move more throughout Mm -hmm. the day that that might even be up there with sleep we're talking about diet and exercise but we might have we might have sleep above all those Mm -hmm. and then just general movement above of your fitness aspirations in other words just getting up and and walking around might be higher ranked than Mm -hmm. um, your punch card at the CrossFit session so that's kind of a, a good starting point and then my inspiration was like my personal goal is to avoid that sarcopenia and maintain my muscle mass muscle strength athletic performance and so my mindset is perform recover perform recover how can I do that better just like an athlete because I'm a fake athlete at age 57 but I can call myself whatever I want that's different than someone who's got bad blood panels mm-hmm. um, a lot of excess body fat and is frustrated and needs to go tap into some of these tools such as name the title of your book now and then we'll care. the intermittent fasting transformation right so tra- <laughs> transforming the physique is a real battle I mean it's 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 brutal and this the failure rate is uh, incredibly high and so if we can tap into these tools that'll that'll kick into lifestyle change I'm all in favor of that just like the keto reset diet 21 day ketogenic plan to do something different and and go in and and start fine-tuning your metabolism that's great Um, but you know my personal example I talk about it a lot because I think it's relevant for people who are healthy and active and might want to focus on that 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 fitness ambition 
above all else and how are we going to fuel that i'm trying to fuel that with as much nutritious food as i possibly can including a ton of carbs relatively speaking to what i ate before but it's probably not that much because you have a whole pineapple and a giant bowl of blueberries and some dried fruit uh, and all that um, it's all nutritious carbs it's, there, there's not an allocation for um, you know uh, the wendy's frosty as there was when I was in college and loved stopping off to get Wendy's Frosties. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. I interviewed Stephen Gundry on the podcast, and he was talking about how you can add MCT oil to fruit, and it'll <laughs> slow. It exactly. So was, that's That was what he Did was advocating for. Hotel? Would you like a drizzle <laughs> of MCT over your berries? It doesn't sound d- tasty. Well, I have to be Tasteless, careful. Tasteless, but... Yeah, no, MCT oil is one of those... Uh, <laughs> One of those foods that I think is fascinating, but also you have to be careful with it. You know, Dave Asprey talks about disaster pants. And so I have colleagues that can have two tablespoons of MCT oil. And if I have a teaspoon, that's my max. Mm. What Otherwise, when you take it? it'll give you diarrhea. Okay. Hence, disaster pants. So uh, when Gundry <laughs> was talking about, you know, he's like, yeah, you got this big bowl of berries or a big bowl of pineapple. And you just put some a tablespoon of MCT oil and it'll help you you know, moderate your blood sugar response. And I was like, great. And then hopefully you don't have the untoward (laughs) digestive distress. I'm questioning whether someone's adverse blood sugar response to a bolus of fruit might be predicated by a lot of unhealthy lifestyle habits leading up to that, including decades of eating a bunch of junk food. Just wondering. Yeah, no, I think, and I think it's important that we're all transparent about like my N of one experiment. Like Mm -hmm. right now I'm, I'm kind of leaning more back towards eating more ketivore or eating more um you know car eating more meat than i had before and less vegetables because my my gut will let me know when i've mm. consumed too many so i'm like okay i've been augmenting my fasting window eating earlier in the day i know when we you were on my podcast we were talking about the triad that i'm starting to see with a lot of females that they over fast they over restrict and they mm. over exercise and why that can be problematic and so mm. Finding that happy medium for each well, one of us. Well, that's a bad triad right there. It's a there. very bad triad. And they make bad choices on the dating app, so that's the <laughs> quadrangular. <laughs> so what is a good window for intermittent fasting, in your um, opinion? I, I, think, I, I think a good I starting point. Yeah, <laughs> I think a good starting point is um, 15, is, is a 16-8. So 16 hours fasted with an 8-hour feeding window, I think, is a really good starting point for most people. And then kind of figuring out for yourself, like days you lifted in the gym, once you're fat adapted, once your body's able to effectively utilize different types of fuel substrates, like, oh, I lifted heavier this day. I'm really hungry at nine o'clock in the morning. Do you break your fast or make yourself suffer for two more hours? And mm. I'm a huge advocate of there should be no suffering in fasting mm. or just in general. We should not force ourselves to suffer. Um, so I wow, think, what a novel and crazy idea from author Cynthia Thurlow. Is, she doesn't want you that's, suffering. No. That's suffering for me, you know, fasting, especially <laughs> by the end of, you know, toward the end of the third day. It's, it's, it's terrible. Do you, mm. So you're doing prolonged fasts? What, I, I don't. I do in, intermittent fasting. But once in a while when I did the prolonged fast, and it's absolutely miserable, mm-hmm. and I, I get, you know, pretty moody. I bet. And, just just feeling like what am i doing to myself this can't be good for me mm. yeah well and, and and that's a good example like your your threshold may be two days if you're doing a prolonged fast but mm. you're also a very petite person so for you i always say like i think the net benefit of really long fast it by about 24 hours if you're already lean i think that you run the risk of mm. breaking down catabolizing muscle at the expense of any benefits that you're getting in, in upregulation of autophagy. Mm. Um, you know, there was a whole discussion amongst kind of the 
kind of the healthcare people on Twitter talking about these prolonged fasts, what are the benefits? And so I, I'm just a, a fervent believer. If you're already a lean person, I'm not sure how much more benefit you're getting mm. by doing these really long pro- prolonged fasts because I want to protect muscle mm. over the expense of you know, hanging my hat and saying, oh, I did a four day fast. Cause I agree with you. It's as much a mental exercise as a physical one. And so if you feel like you're really, like your mood is suffering, you don't feel good, break your fast. Yeah, that but research. But then people uh, talk about autophagy, how you yeah, can hit yeah. the real autophagy. Yeah. Until, I, like Mike I can't Mutzel's, remember how many, uh, how, how, what, is it like at least 24 hours? Well, you know that we get upregulation after 16, 18 hours, but you know, there's no way to test us at home. Like, oh, for you, your personal autophagy threshold is 22 hours. Pretty soon then, we're coming out with a meter that you can yes, stick into exactly. your stomach. Yeah. I'm sure you can, yeah. Unless well, you're in a lab situation. I'm, I'm, I appreciate Mike Mutzel's recent video, very popular. It says, why I stopped fasting and what I'm doing instead is the title. We'll have it in the oh. links. But um, he cites research that at that 48-hour mark of fasting, you get the awesome autophagy benefits Walter Longo talks about it too, and the and the fake fast, the mimicking fast, where you can eat a little bit of food every day and get to that five day point where your organs shrink because of all the damaged cellular material is gone. Uh-huh. And then the video essentially says, if you go slam in the gym for an hour, you will get these same similar <laughs> autophagy signaling to a 48 hour fast. And then he does the punchline: Which one would you prefer, <laughs> slamming in the gym for an hour or a 48 hour yeah. time with no food? And I think piggybacking that is like the, the major benefits of keto, of prolonged fasting, of intermittent fasting even, or people with metabolic damage that need intervention. They're like, if we're all in the ER, they're going to take those people there mm-hmm. and, and treat them first. And then they're going to have you go do your Zumba class <laughs> instead. Uh, I'm making, making light of this, but mm. it does feel like that, um, that, that trade-off where you're going to get all these awesome benefits from fasting, keto, all that stuff as well as you're gonna get a lot of benefits in the gym building muscle. And these are not mutually exclusive, right? They're kind of hand in hand and the bio-individuality. So let's check our scoreboard, get your ass off the couch, start working out, and then we'll talk about adding, going up from three eggs to six eggs and all these things that maybe the the triad people especially are, are fearful of. Well, and it's interesting. I love Mike Muscles' work. I mean, it's he's you know high intensity. I thought you health. said I love my muscles. No, no, I'm I like, love yeah, Mike Muscles' you know, work. She's working hard in the yeah. gym all the time. No, no, I, the high intensity health. It's definitely a podcast I listen to on the regular. I think he does a really fantastic mm-hmm. job. But is it any question? Like, would you rather have a tough workout or fast for four days? I mean, to me, that's a that's like a, <laughs> a no brainer. And so, unfortunately, I think there's this this methodology and there's this dogmatic thought process that you have to you know you have to fast for a long period of time to get all these benefits mm. and you have to suffer a lot. And I'm just not a fan of encouraging anyone to have to suffer a lot. Like, are you going from being a couch potato, doing a standard American diet, transitioning to a more nutrient dense whole foods diet mm. and eating less often? That shouldn't be perceived as a suffrage, but you know, for some people that may be a bit of a little <laughs> bit of effort, but the long-term gains are pretty significant. But I think mm. for the average person, it's an, it's not a question of which one most people I think would want to do. And I, I certainly, before I had my 13-day hospitalization, I did some longer fasts. I never loved them. And it's much more of a mental fast because you're like, I'm really hungry and I'm grumpy and mm. I think probably dehydrated and I don't want to have to fast for another 24 hours. What am I going to do with myself? Mm. So I, I think from a lot of different levels, I have to be fully transparent and say, I don't love long fasting mm-hmm. either. I mm. ran into you know the prolon people mm-hmm. at the A4M meeting mm-hmm. just last weekend and having a you know great conversation with the scientist and this this doctor and he was saying how 
traditional fast, you know, just you know, water fast, and that allows more chance for a breakdown of your muscles, and um, and and you really don't want that to happen. That's why they're giving you nutrients. But I guess they have specific ratios of nutrients. But or you can just cut your food down for five days,、mm. right? To maybe you eat, I don't know, half or a third of what you ate. I assume you would also achieve similar benefits.、Mm-hmm. But、um, yeah, I'm I'm actually a little confused about、yeah. doing the prolong versus just you know going straight fasting or just cut down your calories. Well. I mean, they all fall in the category of stressors, and that's the real、Hormesis. insight that really hit me in the head earlier this year when Jay Feldman talks about that really nicely on his Energy Balance podcast, where keto fasting,、um, you know, restricting calories, whatever, are stressors to the body, and the body responds with these wonderful health benefits. You get the amazing immune boost, anti-inflammatory. The body works better in a fasted state. The muscles repair, all these great things. But if we We have to remember that it's a stressor, and then we have to look at our overall stress scoreboard, where we have、um, bitchy girlfriend、uh, whined again last night because I was 20 minutes late.、Uh, my my hard workout in the gym, my busy stressful job,、uh, a few indulgences where I had the Ben and Jerry's, and you have this big long scoreboard, and then you're going to fast to try to cleanse and take care of all that. But in one context, and it's very important context to me because I'm talking about perform, recover, perform, recover. I don't want any extra stress. I already have the stress from those people that sent me the email, <laughs> that come looking for me, and I keep dodging it. You know what I mean? Like、mm-hmm. we have a stressful life, busy, hectic, stressful life. And now I know I'm going to tee you up in a second here, but、um, that that's I think lost in the shuffle with. How awesome it is to go keto and break free and and have all these health awakenings and you're more clear and mentally alert in the morning when you you skip your oatmeal and all that. It's because the stress hormones are flowing and you're on that you're on that heightened fight or flight response. Same with jumping in the cold tub, which I'm a huge fan of, but I've taken it down from six minutes trying to be tough guy and put up a YouTube video and show how long <laughs> I can last. Now it's like. One and a half to two minutes is fine. It's freaking thirty-eight <laughs> degrees in the tub. I don't need to stay in there six minutes. And I wiggle my legs and I smile and I I, I, I appreciate it. I didn't almost said enjoy, but that's a whole different mindset than when I was seeing how cold adapted I can get. And I was at four and now I'm going for six. It's just stress and more stress and more stress and more stress. So taking care of our nutritional needs is kind of what you're talking about. And maybe we shift gears a little and, and go back to that time in your life when you were working super hard. You had the kids、uh, doing your workouts, and then kind of had a burnout experience where your your health decline kind of prompted some of these awakenings and and career transition, I guess,、uh, along that timeline. Yeah, I didn't know you had a burnout. <laughs> oh yeah, so so、uh, yeah, well, I think we talked about that. Did we talk about that? I guess we must have talked about that offline after we recorded for my podcast.、Mm-hmm. So. Hormesis is beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time,、mm. and because I was heading into perimenopause, and I tell everyone, no one prepared me—not my mother, not my GYN, not my girlfriends. It was just like I hit a wall, and I was doing too much. I had young kids. My husband traveled internationally. I had a very stressful job, as you can imagine. Cardiology—it's like high intensity in the hospital. People who are very critically sick in many instances. So stress, 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 and then I would wake up and take these conditioning classes, which were super、mm. intense. What time? 
five thirty in the oh, morning. God. And then I would go to the hospital. And so I just remember it was a lot of this wash and repeat. Like I was just really pushing my body. A lot of my friends are they played, you know, lacrosse in college and so I'm hanging out with them and they're wonderful people. But you know, it gets to a point where I'm like, I, I got up one morning and I was like, I literally was like, I'm not depressed. Mm. I had no energy. I was like, what is wrong with me? Mm. Where am I in my cycle? And so it started this kind of observational pattern of I'm not sleeping anymore. I'm having weird food cravings. I remember I craved, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of people making protein pudding. So mm. it's like whey, a scoop of whey protein and then you add like water to it and you can put in like nut oh, butter. Yeah. Oh, oh nice. so I was like eating a lot of that and it was like I was craving certain <laughs> yeah. things. I was like, what's wrong with me? And then I started becoming weight loss resistant. I'd never struggled with my weight my entire life, not even after having pregnancies and breastfeeding, any of that. And I was like, okay, something's wrong. What does and that term mean? It means you can't lose weight despite doing all the things that you should be able to lose weight. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're tracking your macros and it's Doing just, everything right. I'm exercising. And so I, I didn't know enough about what's happening in perimenopause, again, because I didn't know anything about perimenopause. No one ever talked to me about it. Yeah, you're just was, a nurse practitioner. What, what should right, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I was like, I went to a leading research institution <laughs> for undergrad and grad school. Like, how could I not know? But it's because yeah. we don't talk to women about these changes. <laughs> And so I hit this wall and it literally, you know, I went to my functional medicine person and we, you know, it was like my thyroid. I was too much mercury. It was like all these different things. You have mm. a parasite, you've got this, you've got that. And it took me a year of just trying to go to bed on time, changing my diet, which was already pretty good. Mm. Um, I would just walk. Like I could tell if I had overdone it because I would just be exhausted the next day. So I just, all I did was walk. Mm. I couldn't go to the gym and lift weights. I couldn't go to the gym and take those tough punishing classes anymore. And it was because I just had over, I completely over tipped that, that hormetic bucket. My body was like time out. And this is even before I was fasting. And so it was the realization that you can't just push your body all the time and not have enough recovery. Like you were just mentioning. So I hit that wall and then it was the following year when I left medicine. By the time I, my mm. body was healing, I was like, I need to change a lot of things. And mm. one of them needs to be less stress in life. So that was an easy transition. But I think so many women go through that, but they don't realize it. And they just push through it thinking, you know, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. And they get more inflamed and more overweight. And, you know, for me, it was like the, the last five, I used to call it the five pound dairy. The last thing that allowed me to get back to my normal body habitus was dairy like i didn't even eat much dairy but it was like dairy was five pounds of inflammation oh. one of the hardest things to ever eliminate now it makes me totally grossed out but, i didn't want it but if you eat raw dairy i'm wondering if that's gonna make a big don't difference. even don't even touch it and i ate i would mm. eat raw cheddar and i would have occasionally have like full fat greek yogurt and that was about it okay but yeah for me dairy was the missing link but it's mm. different for everybody but it's just the point of why I share this is that even people who are well-meaning know a lot can fall into that trap of middle age mm. where, you know, people just say it's a normal function of aging to gain weight. I'm like, BS. Mm. Yeah, it doesn't a have sign to be. Of, sign of dysfunction. Correct. Right. Metabolic inflexibility and imbalance in the body, for sure. I want to discuss the incredible benefits of red light therapy and how you can get started with Mito Red Light. Mito, like mitochondria, red light makes the premier light therapy devices in the world and at incredibly affordable prices. I stand in front of my Mito Pro 1500 unit every morning, carefully exposing my eyeballs, other important balls, and my entire body to special wavelengths of red and near-infrared 
infrared light. When I tell people about my daily devotion to red light therapy, they typically ask, does this stuff really work? And the answer is yes. And there are thousands of studies supporting its effectiveness. Here's how. It's called photobiomodulation where specific wavelengths of red and near-infrared light, red's visible, near-infrared is not visible, that's why it looks like only half of your panel's working, these wavelengths help mitochondria in cells throughout your body produce more energy and clear waste products more efficiently. Red light exposure helps mobilize nitric oxide trapped in the mitochondria and allows oxygen to return to the cell and increase ATP production. The benefits are proven again and again for skin health, muscle recovery, joint pain, and numerous inflammatory conditions. Red light therapy is also beneficial for circadian rhythm alignment because we generally get far too little direct sunlight and too much indoor blue light from screens and light bulbs at the wrong times. You don't hear much about this benefit of red light therapy, but when I turn on those lights, first thing in the morning. As soon as I wake up, I walk across the hall, I stand in front of the panels, and I feel instantly awake and energized. And believe me, there's a lot of days where Mr. Health Guy here wakes up feeling a little groggy and a little whiny, like I don't want to right get up now and get into my morning exercise routine. But when I stand in front of the lights, in one minute, I swear I feel wide awake. I get all that grogginess out naturally. It's super powerful, super effective, besides all the healing and the cellular benefits. I also love it for being a natural wake-up machine. You have to try red light therapy. I am certain that you will become a devoted user. And guess what? Mito Red Light offers a 60-day no-risk trial period and a special 5% discount for B-Rad podcast listeners. Just visit mitoredlight, M-I-T-O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. Yeah, wow, that's a, that's a journey. I, I remember being in the hospital. I worked in the psych ER for 11 years, so twice a week at least, so 40 hours in the, in the psychiatric wow. emergency room for 11 years. And my friends told me that you're going to burn out, you're going to burn out. I said, no, I'm not going to. Hmm. So I was fine, but I know it was taking a toll on me, you know, not sleeping, you know, waking mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night, some yeah. nights, of course, no sleep. And then <laughs> probably not eating the best thing. You know, I tried to be disciplined, but I, I think, you know, that took a toll. But fortunately, I, I left before <laughs> I hit that wall. How many years did you work in ER psychiatry? ER was, counting residency was 11 years. So I never stopped doing the overnights. It was at least twice a week. Oh, it's brutal. For 11 years. That's brutal. I was an <laughs> ER nurse in inner city Baltimore. And then when oh. I, then I, in this one cardiology practice, we did overnights. And, but our, yeah. but the nurses were actually really good to us. They would let us like fall asleep on a stretcher for maybe an hour but I remember right before my son was born, my first son, I was like, I can't do this anymore because mm. I'm I'm an early bird. I'm a I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. I'm bright eyed and bushy tailed. I want to go to the gym, and I I just I was wrecked. Like I just could not recover. And it was okay maybe in my twenties, but then mm. in my thirties, I was like, oh man, this is not easy. I think people do fall into the trap of thinking that they're in invincible. Mm. That is almost a badge of honor of how hard mm -hmm. you work and how far you can push mm -hmm. yourself 
instead of thinking, oh, I'm being dumb, I'm damaging myself, you think I'm tough. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And it's interesting. I was reading a book as I was coming over because I had this this long drive and it was talking about research, talking about shift workers and how they're at greater risk for certain types of cancers and metabolic disorders. And um, I was texting a girlfriend of mine who's actually a, a nurse anesthetist and saying, I'm so glad you're no longer working nights. And mm-hmm. let me just screenshot this okay. this mm-hmm. research that I'm looking <laughs> at. And she and she was like, oh, my gosh. And, and she's a breast cancer survivor. So for her, like getting that validation of how that can impact your you know susceptibility or any of us our susceptibility to certain types of cancers and metabolic disease is pretty significant yeah yeah i'm thinking of john gray's comments here the 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 relationship author men are from mars women are from venus and all the subsequent books one of my favorite podcast guests and um he contends that the, the 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 cultural evolution where the the biological male and the biological female are leaving their traditional roles and asked to blend them and merge them. So now today's evolved man is supposed to be uh, uh, honest, vulnerable, uh, nurturing, connecting, helping out with the, the, the little kids and all the things that uh, my great-grandfather and grandfather probably worked eight to five, came home, lit up the pipe, put their feet up and, <laughs> and read the paper, and now we're, we're trying to be all all these different things. And then on the female side, he contends, you know, we have record rates of anxiety, depression, prescription drug use by the the modern evolved female because we want them to, of course, their prominent biological drive of being nurturer, caretakers, and all that, and then go kick ass in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And so... He calls it the uh, the uh, you know the male side or the male dominant testosterone side. And so you're waking up, first you're nurturing, caretaking with your young kids, and then you're heading off to to, to crush it. And I know you're on this career path mm-hmm. that's you know super intense and challenging, and you're well adapted to it, as we can read in her book, Tiger of Beijing. You really thrive on that type of competitive environment. But John Gray argues persuasively that like this is. Uh, different than your primary female biological drive that we can suppress but we can't escape. So we want you to be everything is, is basically the question, especially um, I think females have it worse than um, the men who are asked to now share their feelings a little more than they did in the past. That's not a big ask for me, um, although my last... Especially not you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like in the problem-solving mode, and then, like, what emotions are behind that? Well, I'm fucking pissed. Well, that's not an emotion. You know, let's dig a little deeper. I, I've gotten that feedback before. Um, but I wonder how, first of all, um, how that lands, and then how, how do you manage these things where you're turning the switch on, then you're turning it off, then you're turning it on, then you're turning it off. Oh boy, Cynthia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think it's a, it's a constant effort to find balance. I mean, balance is elusive, I mean, let's be honest, but I felt like I had to prove myself by working in the ER, mm-hmm. I had to prove myself by going to cardiology, which tends to be a very male-dominated field, and even as an NP, like I'd have a very thick skin to deal with, you know, the abruptness and the emergencies and all these other things. I feel like I had to prove myself for a long mm-hmm. period of time. I was a young nurse practitioner, prove, 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 prove. And then I think as, I, as I've gotten older, it's the recognition that, you know, there are feminine and masculine energies. You know, we as individuals, we lean into one maybe more than another. And so my greatest challenge has been to kind of slow down a little bit, be a little bit more introspective say no more often you know the people pleasing Mm. tendencies that come along with women especially younger women um you know the the irony is that as we are losing estrogen as we're getting older 
we start losing those people-pleasing tendencies, ah. which is a beautiful thing. And so I think it's a constant effort and balance to, you know, find some degree of, you know, within each person's indiv individual lives, like what works best for you, what makes the most sense. Um, you know, for me, I have a mother who uh, was very, very, very successful. And so I don't want to replicate the way that she went about having all that tremendous success that she was very masculine like driven mm. and very controlling and domineering and and that worked for her and she was super successful on a lot of different levels but i didn't want that for my family was she happy no no <laughs> no, no, no no but she 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 was she was very um i think some people want to be successful for different reasons uh, I think if it's ego driven, that's that's probably not the best reason to want to be successful. And so, if you if your ego drives all your decision making, you're probably not going to make the healthiest choices. Whereas I'm very service oriented, and so I always say like, what's of greatest value to my listeners? What's the greatest value to the people I work with? What's the greatest value to the people on my team? What's the greatest value to your listeners? Um, when we're having this conversation, really being thoughtful about it, and that's very different. So to me, it's always a joy, and and I I love. Being able to help people, inspire people, educate people, and, and empower people, but it, it comes from a good place. So, getting back to your original mm. intention of your question, the way I stay balanced within myself is asking myself the questions: Who am I serving? Who am I speaking to? Is this coming from my ego? Because if it is, and I'm trying to be an asshole, that's not a good place to be. So, constantly kind of figuring out what it, what is most aligned with my true purpose, what's the most aligned with my family's values, what's most aligned for you know, where I, I see myself being in, you know, five or 10 years. And that's, mm. that's why I'm very family focused, even though I'm traveling this week, but it's just for a couple of days, but it's with the intention of going home to say, okay, for two weeks where I'm like unplugging to be with my family. Nice. I don't know if you, you know, <laughs> you're looking at Joy now. Yeah. <laughs> she ain't going to escape this question. Oh, I was hoping that she would just wrap it all in one. Um, well, I think it is a struggle. Um, you know, I, you know, my mother was a hypercritical Chinese mother, and um, and growing up in, in in Chinese culture, I think is highly competitive. Imagine mm. you have 1.4 billion people um, to compete with, and there's very limited resource. So just to get into college, just to tell you, give you an idea, my year, um, I graduated in 1989. It was an easy year to get into college, and that's one out of every eight students graduating from high school get to go to college. To any college. The year I mean, after me, somehow, I think there's a, I don't know, there's a high birth rate, what happened, is one in 13. So you can imagine the competition. You can be pretty darn smart and hardworking, but doesn't mean that you're gonna get to go to college. So, so that's kind of the environment I grew mm -hmm. up in that you really have to push hard. Um, and I think I've just, you know, very, always been a very driven person. So it's just drive, drive, drive. What's the next thing? Um, so it's never been satisfied with you know what you know what is, which is great because I've done so much and I've done a lot of good. But um, but how do you balance that with just feeling a sense of calmness mm -hmm. and gratefulness mm -hmm. and just you know appreciating mm -hmm. how much how far you've gone? So mm -hmm. that's. That's something, yeah, it's, um, it's a struggle. It's funny, I was a psychiatrist because, you know, I deal with people's mental health conditions. And, but that's something that seeking that balance, it's, um, it, it, it's a challenge. Um, 
you know, so my my new thing is to to do more meditation and really, um, you know, not just say I'm grateful, but actually feel it in my bones. And that's, I'm working on that and really feel it and really accept, accepting who I am because, you know, I've become, you know, I've, you know, coming from Chinese culture, which was atheist culture, and then having my own spiritual transformation, especially two years ago when I, you know, tried ketamine therapy, when I felt I broke through this veil and saw much greater and, and saw beyond. So that really transformed my perception of my existence, you know, just what I am and what's out there and, and where I'm going, you know, after this. Um, so, so how to integrate that into enjoying this life and, and, and just feeling the joy. And that's my challenge, my name's joy, but I need to feel it. <laughs> you know, I like to feel it at all times. I mean, that would be such a beautiful thing. Um, so that's, that's what I'm working on. Um, and I, it, it, it's, it's, you know, I think I've shifted a little bit before it was accomplish, 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 but now it's, it, it doesn't matter as much. Um, what matters is, is how, how in tune I am with my existence. Hmm. Um, and, and that can be achieved by just being nature. Hmm by yeah by you know loving the animals around you or appreciating people around you so it's a it's a different focus um it seems like i'm doing even more than before but uh but the focus is is, is different you know i like to focus on more on the just the, the enjoyment of of life and of existence you know mm. just make every day every interaction you know like you know feel something inside of you mm. right make the heart feel good mm. yeah no, it's definitely a spiritual journey it sounds like yes it's beautiful yes it is i'm still journeying that's <laughs> yeah, wonderful I, I think for so many of us it's i've gotten much more introspective over the i think since 2019 in particular because i had been so sick i was like if i get out of this hospital bed if i go home if i'm okay i'm gonna live my life a very different like stop the people pleasing, have more boundaries, but be very clear. I fear nothing. I truly feel fear nothing. I'm like, no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. And so, you know, for me, 2019 was like, there was a line in the sand. It's like, okay, what are we going to do? And so, you know, the, the worst thing that ever happened to me was the biggest blessing that ever happened. And Tell so from that, it's really powerful. So I spent 13 days in the hospital in 2019. I went to the hospital with the worst abdominal pain I'd ever had, worse than labor, which said something. And it turned out I had a ruptured appendix, but not just a ruptured appendix. I had initially pancolitis, so the whole length of my colon was inflamed. And the surgeons wanted to take me to the OR. And I was like, time out, I, you can't take my colon. And they're like, of course we can take your colon. I said, I don't want to have a colostomy bag for the rest of my life. No, I need you to save my colon. And so my husband was like, please save her colon. And I'll never hear the end of it. I'll never hear the end of it. I'll never hear the end of it. And so that then started this 13-day journey. It was like day two, I developed a small bowel obstruction. So I went from looking normal to looking like I was six months pregnant. And then it was like one series of complications after another. I developed retroperitoneal abscesses. I developed a fistula. I was seeing five or six different specialists trying to figure out what was going on. And so during that 13-day journey, on, on day five, I recall that I was 
visited by a spirit, God, whomever, mm. you, the universe, and it was, you know, what do you want to do? Did you have a ketamine IV in it? No, I did <laughs> not. Dr. No. I did not, but I remember very distinctly, I was like, I set an intention, there are two things I want to do. I want to get home to my kids and I want to do this talk. And of course, my husband thought it was nuts <laughs> in the midst of being very sick. And so day 13, I went home and I said to my mom, my Italian mother, probably a lot like a Chinese mom. <laughs> I said to my mom, I want to do this talk. She's like, no, you're not doing this talk. You're going mm. to recover and you're going to, you know, I lost 15 pounds. So I look like a skeleton and, you know, like I missed every milestone for this talk. And so I you know, my husband reached out to them and said she still wants to do the talk and they were like why <laughs> we totally understand she doesn't want to do it they let me do it and so 27 days after i left the hospital i did a talk that changed my life mm. and i did the talk really to show my kids i was okay that was the intention i was like i really just want to show my kids i'm mm. okay and that talk is you know the rest is history because it went viral and mm. it changed everything the trajectory of my business but what I always say, the most important thing to me is how it changed me as a person, not because it went viral, but because I had been so sick and realizing like, what's most important in my life? What do I want to do with my life? I don't want to play, I don't want to play safe anymore. You know, let's, mm. let's like embrace opportunities. Let's do things outside your comfort zone. I'm a total introvert, which people are always surprised to know, super introvert. <laughs> um, you know, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? You know, for the next 40 some odd years, what do I want to do? Do I want to live safe and small? No. Mm. And so I, you know, I, I grew up in a house where I had a mother who was very successful. I had a father who didn't live to his full potential. He would say that himself. I'm not paraphrasing. And so I, I just think my place in this space is to show people what's possible. Mm -hmm. And so in, in a way where I'm incredibly grateful for every day and, and very appreciative. And I know we shared a ruptured appendix story. I tell everyone, I'm like, I never respected the appendix. I used to call it a useless vestigial <laughs> organ. Oh, in the ER, I was like, oh, no one needs an appendix. And sure enough. <laughs> what were you afraid of and how were you holding yourself back prior to oh, the visit? You know, I, I think I think I had been conditioned to believe that, you know, I have certain family members that are very, very financially successful. And I was like, oh, you're, you're, you serve others. You know, you're a caretaker. You're a healthcare provider. You're mm. not meant to make money. Mm. You're not meant to be successful in a different capacity. Mm. And so, you know, to me, it was very empowering to realize, like, I had no business training, and yet I made a series of really good decisions, one after another, very serendipitously, that led me to a place where, I mean, it expanded every opportunity that I could have ever imagined. The people I get to meet... The individuals I get to help, um, you know, being on a platform where I get to really encourage women to think beyond the obvious, like not to get caught up in um, scarcity mindset, not to, to believe that you can't be still very vital and active and capable, um, you know, north of 35 or 40. And so I feel very, very, very grateful. You talked some about uh, the concept of manifesting the vision boards, the goals, seeing these things. You talked about it just before we started recording. Mm -hmm that you want to, uh, uh, you know, imagine yourself mm -hmm. with all your successes and Feel how that feels. Right. Right. So we're writing down our goals. Really I'm going to add a zero them. to some of my uh, business goals. <laughs> and Oh, there, I met my goal. I just had a zero. It's that simple. Um, and then how do I feel about it is the next step besides Right. You know, going for these these linear goals. You're living that feeling. Yeah. It's an amazing yeah. feeling. It's funny. I had a, so I've created a vision board every year. I don't necessarily make it public. It's like, it's just something that I have. And there was someone I put on a vision board like five years ago. And I've listened to this person's podcast and I've been like, I'm just really been amazed at 
his ability to connect with people. And I was on his podcast this fall and I was trying not to be a dork in his presence because he was amazing and wonderful. And at the very end, as I was leaving, I just said, I have to let you know, five years ago, I put Mm. you on a vision board. And I said, I'm still kind of like pinching myself that I'm here, but yet I'm, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. Like I'm exactly at a point in my career where I'm supposed to be. I would not have lived to my full potential if I'd stayed in clinical medicine. Mm. I wouldn't be able to help as many people. And so I tell my kids, and so my 15-year-old, who's kind of cynical, he was like, mom's going to manifest, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And I just have to remind him, I'm like, manifestation is a really powerful act, and it's one we should lean into. You know, it's it's mm. something that for me, I, I, everything that I've, I've, I've stated I want to do has happened. Mm-hmm. And so it's like taking those little incremental steps forward that allows us to put ourselves in positions and to grow. Like, you should be doing things that scare you. You should never get complacent. When we get comfortable, we don't grow. Mm-hmm. And through adversity comes opportunity. And that, to me, has just been what I feel like I've really learned in the last few years in particular. Like, we don't, we don't grow when we're comfortable. Mm. So once you put it on the vision board, do you do, you do anything about it to reinforce it? Like what, what, what do you do with it? I look at it. Because for me, I'm very visually oriented, so it's just a reminder. Um, you know, for me this year, it was uh, you know more inner growth stuff. So I want to make sure that I'm investing in, like I've been doing more Reiki therapy, and I've been mm-hmm. doing more, um, you know, cognitive work. Because I always say, like, not. I, I think I'm convinced that tr- traditional therapy is something I will probably do for the rest of my life because there's always stuff I need to work on. Like I'm not perfect. I'm perfectly imperfect and so there's always things like oh um, when I get triggered you're like oh okay well there's something I need to work on you know there's like you know and it, it's what an funny opportunity yeah thank you so much for being <laughs> such an asshole yeah. no but it, it's interesting like the whole concept of trauma leaving scars and you're like oh I got triggered so what am I not dealing with because mm-hmm. I think the only way that I can evolve into the person I'm supposed to be because I'm not yet there is just constantly introducing opportunities to become stronger, be more, you know, just putting myself in positions where I'm, I'm growing constantly. So to answer your question, my vision board is part visual representation of the direction I'm going in, but it's also the validation, like as I'm achieving those things that I'm talking about, and they're not material things, like maybe clear, like sometimes people put that, like, I want to have this kind of car. It's not that kind of stuff. It's substantive things. Who do I want to meet? Mm. Who do I want to speak on a stage with? Um, what are the opportunities I want to have come my way um, in my business or personally or professionally? You know, right now I'm at a stage where I've got teenagers and teenagers don't really love spending time with their parents. I mean, they do and they don't. And so it's constantly entertaining ways like how can I connect more with my kids before mm. they go to college? How can I be more present for my husband? Because mm. I tend to be like a whirling dervish in my head, mm. you know, where I'm like, oh, I got all this stuff I need to do and I'm not 100% present all the time. So how can I be more present, more capable? Mm. Yeah, I think the mere act of, uh, of doing the, making the effort is, is taking these huge steps forward. And um, I'm, I'm coming to appreciate these concepts more where maybe perhaps at first I uh, would call bullshit on the the characterization where I'm, I'm going to manifest the perfect guy. He's got a little bit of stubble. Um, he flies private. He's got a Ferrari. And, you know, we, we, we ridicule this type of um, 
this this art or whatever you want to call it and so if you think it's bs like perhaps a teenager might pop mm -hmm. off about it he's absolutely correct because that's <laughs> you know you form that belief you're right doesn't mean shit and you might as well uh, forget it uh, but then if you sort of sort of tiptoe in this direction and realize also that anything we've accomplished to date we dreamed about it beforehand i promise you <laughs> in one way shape or form um so that that's kind of um, a way to kind of open up, I think, more people, especially those who might be resistant or uh, make these self-limiting beliefs and verbalize them, and that's part of your life, and you know that person complains a lot, and it's just kind of something they own that they might want to get rid of. I like Luke Story's take on this whole concept of manifestation. He says, it won't work, and you're not connected to anything until you start with a place of gratitude for where you are right now. So he would drive through the Hollywood Hills and see these big-ass estates and, and, and think, why not me? I would throw kick-ass parties there instead of those, you know, uh, hermits that don't even use their 17 bedrooms, whatever. And that's, you know, we want to get past that and think, wow, I love my little private space here in my one-bedroom apartment. And now I'm going to see myself in the future and feel what it's like to be in that estate throwing the big party, whatever. <laughs> okay, so we start with a position of gratitude, and then we open up to the forces or whatever we want to call it. Because the potential is endless. Mm -hmm. It's as big as our imagination. You write that a lot on your Instagram, I notice, and uh, all that <laughs> cosmic connections. And, like, again, just reading it, even if you're in a bad mood or whatever, you're, you're cut off. And we were talking about this before where... Um, I start my day with tremendous gratitude. I do my morning exercise routine. It makes me feel so good. I'm locked in. I'm locked in. I'm honoring Dave Rossi's contention that the way to become happy is to remove all the things that make you unhappy. And it's like, dang, that works every time. And boy, am I happy just to be alive. And then something comes in to, <laughs> to make you unhappy. And that's, I guess, what you're talking about both. You said it's a process. You're working on it. Mm -hmm. And that's all we're going to do until, until further notice. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that in, in having the ability to talk to so many women, how many people feel stuck and they're not ready to do the work. And I just keep saying, like, trust in the process. Like today you may be able to go from A to B and then maybe, you know, six months from now you go from A to B to C. And just understanding that we're all in this journey. We mm -hmm. all want to be growing. We don't want to be stagnant. Mm -hmm. And yet gosh, the last almost three years have shown us there's a lot of people where there's a lot of cognitive dissonance and they really struggle to be able to evolve as a human being. And so I feel very fortunate that I have opportunities to connect with like-minded people because that's, that's how we all grow. Are we stuck because of all the, uh, uh, the difficult influences that get in our, get in our way today? I, I think I think that's part of it, but I think there are some people. I, I always say it's the world of nice, nice. You know, they just live in this world of nice, nice, where mm -hmm. you know they're they're flying at thirty thousand feet and they're just not willing to see. Like I always say, like I've always been very. I'm probably the truth teller in my family, which gets mm -hmm. me in trouble. I'm like I just see things and I say it. Um, but I think there are people who just don't exist in a space where either they're comfortable or they're capable of seeing things at a deeper level. I don't know. What do you think? Can, does that, does that this hit is home your with you, Joy? Yeah, well, <laughs> people are, yeah, it, comfort, I think, is a big thing, you know, mental comfort, and, mm. you know, even if it's a miserable place, um, it still can be very comfortable, and to break through a particular state requires an activation energy, so mm -hmm. you, either you don't have that energy and the drive within you, um, or you haven't discovered it, um, you know, then, then you're never going to break through. 
then it's just you know let's just stay this miserably comfortable place mm. um, and that's what I see a lot of people are yeah. doing I yeah. feel like these ladies are, are seeing right through me now <laughs> and I could be one of those those nice nices <laughs> seriously because I, so I, I have a tendency to um, avoid conflict uh, I've never once got in the face of the guests calling bullshit on certain stuff that I could have been a completely different podcast host and say, okay, now wait a second. Actually, we do have one occasion where I said, is there any research to back that up? And the answer was, if you don't believe in creation, you're not going to like my answer. Oh. And so I did I did go out on that limb <laughs> when told that celery was good for the bones because it looks like a bone and walnuts <laughs> are good for the brain because it resembles a brain, the walnuts, you know? Um, and then... Uh, Mark Sisson and I went offline, uh, you know, after the show, and, and we made up some more like candy corn look like teeth, so it's good for your teeth. Cotton candy looks like lungs, so it's good for your lungs. But in general, what I'm saying is, I'm navigating through life uh, conflict averse, and also I guess the people pleasing, where um, you want to be appreciated, you want to be liked, you don't want to say no. And um, these are things I guess I'd say I'm aware of and working on because I feel like there might be a, a, a different a different level where it's more unfiltered, which is what I think this this communication medium is all about anyway. It's not the KTLA news, and we'll we'll be back in, in three more minutes of these two ladies, and then we're done. Uh, now we can do whatever. So I'm I'm sharing that um, I I think I I'm looking for a breakthrough in that area where it's just. The real me at all times. We all, we can always dispense feedback with loving kindness, and I strongly believe at all times, with no excuses, especially with kids, loved ones, romantic partner, whatever. There's no need for um, sparks, mm -hmm. but sometimes those sparks start flying when you get triggered because you forgot and you were living nice, nice for um, these seven things, and now you get triggered. So mm -hmm. that's my add-on there. Mm. Work in progress. So you're yeah. no Paul Saladino. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, and, and you know what? Like, I gravitate toward um, certain personalities and have my entire life where they did have that um, that jerky boy gene, which I appreciated and, you know, kind of, um, uh, it, it fed me because I think we, we find, we look for complementary forces, right? And um, I'm not sure I'd recommend that in a romantic partnership. I really like the nicey-nice as the starting point and maybe the ending point, even when shit gets difficult. We can still, you know, speak always with loving kindness, but, you know, get your get your true, um, your, your, your true self out there and, and understand to advocate for your own needs and your boundaries and things like that. I think that's really important. I think a lot of people are conditioned to, to be constantly giving and not advocating for themselves, and that can be a recipe for an unhappy life if you don't acknowledge yeah, or your the, needs. What do you call it when you're stuck in the, um, the comfort, comfort mm -hmm. zone? Yeah. yeah. And I think another thing I'm learning, and, and I was talking with somebody, you know, a group of people, they, because they, I think in this culture, in Western culture, people about, talk about love a lot love you know jesus love you know love for each other love you ice know, cream I, I don't hear that very much in china you know people don't talk about love love you know even in religions is not about you know they may talk you know maybe a little bit of compassion you know a lot about compassion which they they can call it a broad love but they don't you know it's it's, it's very different this culture is very focused on love but i you know i'm 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 trying to you know, kind of 
feel what people are feeling here because um, people who have had you know a lot of spiritual experiences feel that that there's tremendous amount of love coming our way that if we only know how much we're loved then our life is going to be so much more blessed and we're going to feel so much better so that's something that um, you know I, I think it's uh, it's going to take some practice is actually to feel loved and I think that's what what's happening with a lot of people as well they don't mm. think they are loved and then you're just in this world fighting for yourself mm. it's a lonely process mm. yeah I can imagine I mean I, I think about I reflect on the past nearly three years and you know just what goes on with brain physiology when people are stressed you know, the overriding of your prefrontal cortex, mm. people are in the stress state, they're reactionary, they're not thinking, they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're fighting, they're fleeing. And so really understanding that um, there's so much to play with emotions and connection and, and obviously this is your area of expertise, but, you know, from... I don't feel like an expert. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, but I think on a lot of different levels, what I've watched and witnessed as someone who was a poli-sci major the first time around, what I've watched over the last three years, it's like, wow, you know, the pendulum can swing where we understand and we lean into love and we lean into gratitude and we lean into connection or it can be the opposite. And I think when people are disconnected and feel unloved, feel unworthy, that's where a lot of um, negativity can stem from. Yeah. Mm. It's not like, you know, I want to talk about love. It's because I hit a wall, right? And how do you... How do you look at your life again? And the wall is the wall of judgmentalness and and negativity, right? Negative talk, mm -hmm. negative you know perceptions. So and that creates misery. So even though I am overall a pretty positive person, but I still have negative self talks. So it's not you know I usually would not have you know talked about love. You know I didn't go into medical school thinking I'm going to be a psychiatrist or, you know, be very um, touchy-feely. You know, that's not my, you know, that was not the farthest from my mind. But I think it's through living life and and not reaching a state of, of happiness that that you think you, you, you should be able to. You know, like we, mm -hmm. we all want to. Mm -hmm. And what is it's preventing us? Mm -hmm. What is in the way? And that's um, that's probably why um, you know I'm thinking about all this, but I think that has the potential to transform a lot of people's lives because we can talk about diet all we want, but <laughs> if we don't feel good about ourselves, you know, and we don't feel connected, it just it, it's <laughs> yeah. There's an execution not, not possible. Yeah, that's that's what's underneath the surface of failure to execute because I think uh, there's a lot of knowledge out there and a lot of people know where their where their shortcomings are and they make a you know a futile effort and they go regress again um i like james clear atomic habits number one best-selling book in yep. the world right now where he, he makes the point of like set the bar really freaking low so that you can jump over it and make some progress and then celebrate it every time and especially when it comes to diet and changing these these habits and okay they're uh, wiring our brain for the indulgent foods and so we really are addicted to them at a certain level um, but if you can just take that baby step and cut out maybe one little indulgence that's particular to you get over that bar get over that bar because when you said stuck I'm immediately thinking of people that 
they got 17 goals and they're really stuck because none of them are working well. Well, why don't you take one and then we'll check back in a month and, and depending on the starting point, let's make it easy. I, I love that idea for, for everything, even uh, you know, staying away from the distraction of the email inbox. I talked to Seth Godin, he's a best-selling author of many books and marketing expert and peak performance expert and I said, um, you know, I had my list of questions ready to talk to this guy and I, one of them was like, uh, you know, as a fellow author, uh, when I'm working on a book, what do you suggest to, um, you know, alleviate the potential distraction of the email inboxes? I really struggle with that. Oh, good question. Thank you, Brad. Just turn that shit off and get the work done. <laughs> it, the work is too important. That's your calling. That's your highest purpose. Get the freaking book done and, and turn that shit off. And then there was like that silence that we just have right here. Like, I'm waiting for, you know, his seven tips to avoid email distractions. No, that was it. Done. Next question, please. I'm like, all right, that's a pretty badass. Okay, say no more. Have you ever read the book Eat the Frog? Uh, no. It, 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 it's, it's a short read, but my first business coach was like, you need to read this book. And so effectively what you do is you do the three things you don't want to do the most first mm. thing in the morning um. because then you're a total badass the rest of the day. Mm. And so it's a book I recommend to my coaches. I'm like, listen, I'm telling you this book, although it's very simple, it's written to for anyone. Um, to me, it was like incredibly impactful along the lines of atomic habits, like set the bar low. So you're going to succeed, set yourself up for success. And I think, you know, to your point, I think so many of us, we overcomplicate things. Like you were expecting Seth Godin to give you, these are the seven right. tips, and you're right. like, just turn it off. Yeah, and just that's get it setting, done. setting up for failure, really, mm -hmm. to overcomplicate things or make them too daunting. So maybe a first step to set the time of checking email to whatever, you right. know. batching, whatever. 3 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then for, also. For 20 minutes, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, we're succumbing to... Um, this uh, this cultural programming, the hacking of the American mind. Dr. Robert Lustig, who's a food expert, but this book was great about um, you know the, the the dopamine triggers that marketing forces are are, are throwing at us because they know they work and they work really effectively, and um, we get distracted because we get it's called intermittent variable reward, like a slot mm -hmm. machine. When we look at our text messages or our social media feed, it's new, it's novel, and the human brain is wired way more toward that than working on a frustrating manuscript or something that's challenging and that you have to persevere and struggle through. However, persevering and struggling through daunting challenges that are aligned with your highest purpose is the essence of living a rich and meaningful life. So we're compelled to do it. We know it's better for us. It feels great to hit send when you finish a 230-page book that started with a blank screen, but uh, how did I spend my time yesterday afternoon during my book writing block uh, messing with this, messing with that? And I think we're facing this now. We're all of a, a certain age where we can reference this chunk of our life where there was no internet, no distraction, no mobile device. And so I'm, my, my heart's breaking for myself and also the younger generation because now it's like this is the longest direct conversation I've had in many years because there's always something interrupting and um, even you know even in uh, routine everyday transaction it's like we jump to something else we jump to something else in our mind or in our mouth and it's like boy it's 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 an adjustment that I'm having a hard time with and I think mm -hmm. we it would serve us to 
Dr. Lessig listed like, you know, 10 ways. It's like junk food, prescription drugs, street drugs, pornography, video gaming, um, uh, excessive exercise, all these things. You get a huge dopamine hit right away. Uh, serial dating, all this kind of crap. Um, and it's like, wow, that's pretty much um, what we're seeing on advertisements and we're indulging in. No, it's an interesting time. I mean, I, I'm grateful that all of us grew up in a time when you went to college and we all did stupid things, but they weren't chronicled <laughs> on social media and shared with mm. the world. And I, I just think it was still a kind of a blissful period. We didn't walk around with cell phones. I mean, it wasn't mm. until grad school that I had a cell phone. I remember I would leave it in the cab. I was always leaving at places because I didn't like having a cell phone. I hated being accessible. And I think we're just so connected all the time that people don't get opportunities to you know, really decompress because we're so connected. I mean, a good example, my, my phone rang multiple times while I was here, even though it was off, ringing to my iPhone or my Apple mm. Watch. And just that connection where you're like, I'm never truly like disconnected and I want to be. I think most of us desire to be. So with you have teenage boys in the house teenage right boys. now, you're, you're like probably fighting this battle. As I recall, my kids are in their 20s. And then I'm going to ask from the peanut gallery, I would love to have an outside opinion on today's model a typical helicopter slash lawnmower parent so we're gonna we're gonna have everyone involved here but i just felt like it was a daily battle to navigate all these uh untoward forces of culture that you know could could send things off track well i think it, you know my kids lived through this pandemic and so the mm. wheels fell off the bus then because they weren't we they weren't going to school every day they weren't seeing their friends the only way they could be connected was to be on their computer where they mm. were sort of kind of in school, but not really, and connecting on you know gaming computers. And so I feel like the wheels fell off the bus into, in 2020. And so you know giving them a lot of latitude, again, because you, know, you had to. It's like all of us are living through a time we've never dealt with before. You can't see your loved ones. You can't travel anywhere without a mask. It was just so frustrating. And then when they got back to school, maybe it got a little bit better. But now we just shut the Wi-Fi off at night, which is a source wow. of tremendous pain for the teenagers because then they, they they circumvent ways to get back on the internet or to get back on the wall. I mean, it's just an endless. So I, I think I've gotten to the point now where I'm trying to just, do they get good grades and they generally are good kids? Yes. Then I cannot, I, I cannot allow myself to stress constantly. Mm. I cannot be a helicopter parent because I, I don't have the bandwidth for it. Like mm -hmm. the friends or the people I know socially that are that way, I'm like, your kids are going to hate you. You, know, you have to let them fly. Like I have a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old. They have to be able to make some of their own decisions, whether they're the right decisions or the wrong decisions. They have to have to make. They have to have the ability to make some decisions in a safe way. And so, for me personally, the wheel fell off the bus in 2000. We try to keep things reined in. It's not a perfect system. Now the teenagers go to bed later than we do. So that's that's one issue. They aren't out later. They're up in the house. So it's. First dinner is when all of us eat together. Second dinner is when they come down at 9 o'clock at night to destroy my kitchen <laughs> and have second dinner. And then, you know, they go to bed three hours after me. I just can't stay up till midnight. I right. really can't. You can't police that. No. So we've just, we've had to set boundaries and expectations. And sometimes they rise to set expectations and sometimes they don't. And there are consequences to that. They're going to turn out just fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, because, you know, speaking from knowing myself and what kind of kid I was, and it's it's going to be fine mm -hmm. because they just need to explore and test out the boundaries and make some mistakes, mm -hmm. and then they're going to be who they really are. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to find their way. So 
I remember, you know, at the time when I was the most, you know, um, off track, you know, hanging out with a bunch of bad kids and, you know, 13 years old and, you know, coming home and, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night, you know, having not eaten anything and, and just, you know, my parents didn't know what to do with me. And my mom was giving up on me and my dad was the one that was always there mm. writing me notes saying, dear daughter, you know, I'm worried about you. You know, I can't, I can't bear to see you going down this road. And then I would be so mad that he was trying to change how I was, you know, which was been bad. And how dare he? So I'd tear up his note and toss it. But inside, I knew mm -hmm. this man cares about me. My mom didn't. My mom was like, you're going to be social garbage. Goodbye. Mm. You know, but my dad was always there. Wow. And by the time I needed to make a decision of where I want to go in my life, do I want to actually get into a good high school so I can go to college? Mm. Or do I just want to, you know, just float, float away? It was knowing the love from my dad that actually meant something. Mm -hmm. So that's what I used to tell my patients, you know, when I was doing psychiatry, is that because they complain about their kids and how difficult it is, I, I said the best thing you can do is to love them. Because mm -hmm. it, it's a blessing. That's the one thing people don't realize. They assume they're teenagers who wall themselves up in their bedroom that they don't want to talk, they don't want to connect. Mm. And I always say you have to get creative. You have to meet them on their terms. It could be that you take one to run errands or you go grocery shopping, whatever it is, you take them to a movie. Um, you know, I, I never say that I think parenting per se is hard. It's a journey. I've loved every stage, genuinely. My kids know that. Um, this stage gets more challenging because they're bigger than me. They weigh more than me. I look <laughs> up at them. This. They look okay, at yeah, time out. yeah. No, <laughs> there's none of that. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it's that reframe of understanding like what you want or what we desire our children to turn into are mm. strong, independent, healthy adults. That's what we want. That's everything we're doing is investing in that. And so I, I think some of the, the challenges that I see other people making just kind of objectively <laughs> is that they're, they're, they don't like their kids having mm. a, a personality or ideas that differ from their own and they're uncomfortable with that. It scares them. And instead of like leaning into their kid and saying, okay, tell me more about that because I have one child who has very strong political views which are not aligned with mine or my husband's and we're like, where did this kid come from? Mm. And so sometimes I'll just invite him. I'm like, tell me more about that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, explain that to me. And yeah. in the back of my head, I'm going, where did this come from? Yeah. yeah. That's a nice way to yeah. diffuse that. Yes. And the letter writing, that is so touching. That's what a fantastic lovely. strategy. Oh, you know Because that, that counts for, I mean, it's like tearing it up. You're okay. having to physically tear Being up his defined. words. You know like what the kicker was? Incredible impression. Years later, I found out that my parents had gone to the trash can, no. picked up all oh, the pieces, boy. And glued them all back together oh. and saved all the notes. Oh my god, <laughs> that's so sweet. I don't wow. have a dad like that, so I really respect that. <laughs> yeah, that's something. I'm going to start using that technique even at this late date. It's never too late to write a note to your kid. Yeah, just one way tell or the other. I love you. you. I'm concerned yeah. about you, uh, or you know, <clears throat> congratulations, whatever it is. Yeah. Whew. Heavy. That's not a lot of text. My handwriting is illegible. Is your handwriting illegible? <laughs> no, it's beautiful. Mine's terrible. <laughs> I'm telling you, years of writing in hospital charts yeah. way before the advent of EMRs. Yeah, people actually say, like, you're actually a doctor? You don't write like a doctor. Yeah. No, <laughs> my, 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 my signature is scribble. Like that this is my legal signature scribble. Well, you're trying to prove yourself to everyone there. So you had to scribble like the rest of the, the, yeah, rest of the medical scene. Yeah, that's yeah. true. You're the outlier. <laughs>
So back to the Brussels sprouts. You had to you had to put them on the sidelines as you healed. You went strict carnivore. I had to. And all in in the name of healing all that uh, that that trauma. So let's talk a little bit about this carnivore movement, which is fascinating to me, especially the amazing healing stories. Um, you know, I, I've drifted in that direction, a, a lifelong shift in my eating habits to realize that animal-based makes the most sense. It's <clears> evolutionary <throat> model, all those things. And then the, the new insight to me anyway, and to, to most of us, that these wonderful, colorful plant foods that have been widely agreed to be the centerpiece of a healthy diet are possibly not that necessary and even potentially problematic. I love Brian Sanders' Peak Human podcast where he has this food scoreboard, really simple. Um, junk food, processed food is minus one, <laughs> vegetables are a zero, and uh, meat and fruit are plus one. It's like, okay. Wow. Wait, there could be a, a lot one. of doctors who disagree with you. Sure. Or doctors in the integrated medicine a lot, of, space. a lot of humans that disagree with the peak human, right? But I think the the um, the, the breakthrough insight or the, the uh, you know, controversial insight is what about these wonderful, uh, colorful plant foods that have high levels of phytonutrients and things that also are technically toxins prompting a defense response? I think so much of it's the health of your gut microbiome. I know mm. for myself, six weeks of antifungals and antibiotics, my gut was decimated. Right. You had and leaky so, gut and terrible un leaky unfunctioning gut, gut and yes. everything else gut. Yes, I had all sorts of structural, gut, yes, structural, structural problems uh, times 100. So I, I think for, it's been my experience personally and professionally that there was a period of time where I just, I could not tolerate fiber. Couldn't tolerate it. And even now, I can tell you when I've had too much, like too much roughage, too much raw vegetables, too many vegetables in general, my body will give me a check and like, oh, time out. You might want to do carnivore for a couple weeks or you may need to do carnivore for a week or two just to kind of get things back on board. And so I, I think that litmus test is important. I think that's where that bioindividuality comes in. Like my mother, it gives her hives that I don't, I really <laughs> stay away from oxalates mm. because that's the one thing I learned for me was, was particularly potent. Um, whether it's almond flour crackers, whether it's spinach and kale and celery and I mean things that are in, not intrinsically minus the processed crackers, things that are not intrinsically all that bad for you. But for me, um, if I were to eat a kale salad, that would probably set things up that it would just be like, enough inflammation that it would just start this whole onslaught of, of problematic symptoms that I would have. I'll just leave it there as opposed to giving you graphic examples. So um, a high oxalate food. Oxalate is one of these plant poisons, natural plant yep. toxin that can cause inflammation. It can help promote gout and many other things. And I like how you started the discussion because if you have, uh, you know, a healthy gut function and healthy immune function, um, humans have been proven to be incredibly mm -hmm. resilient. We can eat all kinds of stuff from all over the globe. And then we have the modern human where a lot of people are probably suffering from imperfect uh, digestibility. If you have gas bloating, uh, elimination irregularities, all these things, which most people can raise their hand, that's why they do the commercial. Do you have <laughs> frequent <laughs> this, this, and this? Then try this pill. So if we're not um, you know, optimal, and we're looking to experiment, especially if there's a nagging condition of any kind that's not responding to whatever prescription medication or dietary intervention, that's when we really shine the light on this new idea of leaving out the super nutrition plant foods. Well, and it's interesting, Dr. Terry Walls, who obviously healed her, mm. her 
MS with, uh, you know, phytonutrient-dense diet, she talks about nine cups of vegetables a day. I'm like, if mm. I ate even in a, in a healthier gut state, nine cups of vegetables, that would not agree with me. So mm. I think it really comes back to leaning it, like being cognizant and aware of what makes your body feel good, mm. what gives you digestive symptoms like bloating and constipation and diarrhea are not normal. So if they start happening, it means something is off. And unfortunately, I just like I think a lot of people just assume this is their normal. And right. I'm like, you know, right. you should not be constipated. That is not normal. How yeah. many women think it's okay to poop twice a week? Mm. And I'm like, uh, there's something that's that's amiss here. This should not be your normal. Sarcopenia, constipation, gas bloating. <laughs> it's all normal. Seventeen prescriptions. Yes. Right. Um, and I think uh, what what was new for me was to realize that like you're consuming when you have that kale salad you're not consuming directly all these wonderful phytonutrients and antioxidants that go into your bloodstream and, and make you healthier you're consuming the poison and you're prompted to mount an antioxidant defense response in the body i'm like wait are you sure paul saladino is this true he's like yeah you know it, the blueberries are not a handful of antioxidants there are a handful of things that prompt an antioxidant response. Which could be a good thing. Mm -hmm. A fantastic thing. And, you know, a plant-based diet and all the, all the highly regarded uh, uh, benefits. So um, I, I think my follow-up was if you, can, if you can get those benefits elsewhere, such as fasting, I mean, what's more antioxidant? The morning smoothie at the smoothie bar or fasting until your meal? Fasting's probably going to win, I'm guessing, in, in some context. And so if that's the case, um, what's the rationale left over to go looking for a salad every day besides enjoying your life and wanting to celebrate with the salad rather than Ben and Jerry's? Well, besides salad tastes amazing. Right. I mean, not, no joke. I mean, you, that's what I'm saying is like you want to live and enjoy your life and the handmade gourmet ice cream in Seattle where they have a bunch of different places you can go test and sample. It's delicious. So I'll do that not with my shopping cart today when I go to the store, but when I'm on vacation and indulging and enjoying my life. I have no, no problem with that. Same with if you truly enjoy salad. But what happened to me in May of 2019, hearing this information, I'm looking at my salad going, well, you know, it's crunchy, but the, the dressing's good on it and the things I put on it uh, but it was sort of like, if this is not the centerpiece of health and going to help me live to 123, um, I guess I'm second-guessing it now and going looking more towards the slices of liver and the eggs and the, and the grass-fed buffalo and those things that are the true nutrient-dense foods of the planet. I'm kind of being argumentative here. I want to get you guys going and, and um, throwing out some, some spice. But to me, it was like a, a real awakening and also putting me in the um, ashamed and embarrassed category from writing these books saying, you know, uh, th this, is, this is the ultimate, and uh, if you can, the further you can get toward more colorful and more plants on your plate, and we take a picture of the plate with two-thirds plants and one-third, um, some of that's now being aggressively challenged by, by the, the promoters of the carnivore movement. But isn't it supposed to be that we, we evolve and shift and change as mm. clinicians and human beings throughout our lifetime? So I don't have to be embarrassed and ashamed? No, Is that what you're saying? No, because okay. I used to tell patients, eat frequently and eat snacks and mini yeah. meals to stoke your metabolism and stabilize your blood sugar. I mean, I cringe. Yeah. Jay Feldman's saying that to me right now. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like, yeah. dude, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... We're we're on the journey for sure. No, yeah. and I, I think you know, on so many levels as a clinician, as a human being, I have shifted my perspective on so many things. When nice. I first heard about paleo, I was like, 
why would anyone freaking caveman exactly yeah. why would i want to do that and then i gave up gluten and i and i you know reversed an autoimmune condition mm. and then you know i gave up dairy a few years later and then i gave up grain and so it, to me it's just it's figuring out what works for you what doesn't work for you and then kind of leaning into the science i i, I don't disagree that carnivore can be beneficial but i don't think we're intended to just eat meat forever Right, it's an extreme. Like, I think we need some variety, uh, you know, and, and yeah. I'm a perfect example. Nine months of carnivore, I felt 100 percent better, mm-hmm. but I missed vegetables, and so I, I think that it really speaks to the fact that we should be open to the possibility that we don't have all the answers, and that our, we can change our perspectives. Much you said, you know, even I wrote a book that got published this year, and there are things I probably would have said differently now, mm-hmm. a year later. Exactly. Do some miming. Yeah. yeah, I, you know, coming from different culture, I mean, China, you know, 10,000 years, you know, civilization, I mean, it's, it, plants have always been really important, right? Look at all the Chinese herbs, you know, granted they have some, you know, other things, animals and insects and in there, but um, plant, it's the mainstay of Chinese herbal medicine. And also so much of what they do is to use, you know, all these basically different plants to heal right so I mean it's it's gonna be very hard to you know to be convinced that that is gonna be bad for you um, I think it's you know <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly which ones are the best for a particular person that probably takes some fine-tuning but you know, it's going to be very hard for me to to think that I can just shoot plants down. Just throw away 7,000 years of Chinese medicine. Well, I don't think... Paul Saladino would agree strongly that plants have the healing and medicinal properties, and that's different than making them the centerpiece of your calories every day. And I appreciate that, and I appreciate how he evolved and now started chowing down on the honey and the fruit when he was, you know, the, the, the meat and meat person. Um, and so um, that brings us to, like... I'm kind of on this meat and fruit kick right now, uh, realizing that fruit is very difficult to criticize as, oh, isn't that too many carbs in your diet? Fruit is an incredibly nutritious food that's easy to digest by and large, especially compared to the plants that we're asked to put aside by due to potential sensitivity to the to the high levels of oxalates and all the other lists, sulforaphanes yep. and all that stuff. So. Um, and the carbohydrate providing energy for modern life. I don't care if my ancestors, you know, struggled and suffered and made it through long, dark, cold, harsh winters uh, going keto because I'm trying to compete in the 400 meter race in four months' time and I'm not going to uh, model my ancestral example literally. That's stupid. We're trying to progress and progress and, and perform better than I'm, I'll kick any caveman's ass in the 400 meters, I promise, who's ever lived because they didn't care about that stuff. They just wanted to survive the long, dark, cold, harsh winter. And I have a sticky note on my, uh, on my wall that I've had for many years and it was a quote from Dr. Perlmutter, highly respected physician and author, um, don't eat fruit in the wintertime because our ancestral example is that was a time for fat storage and uh, you know less glycemic ability and all these things and it's so spot on and valid through evolutionary anthropology but then as I, as I look at the quote a lot I'm thinking you know last winter Southwest Airlines had a flash sale for $80 one-way ticket to Hawaii. So we went to Hawaii four times last winter, and I was doing hot, sweaty hikes and going to the farmer's market and slamming the mangoes and the pineapples during winter. So it's like, what effing winter are we talking about now with these bright lights on us and our bright lights and our screens? Um, 
we, we can we can disengage from the ancestral example when appropriate in pursuit of peak mm-hmm. performance and longevity today. So that's been another awakening for me, not to be locked in like um, you know uh, you know obsessed with the with the caveman example. Well, I think that rigid dogmatism. I mean, that's part mm-hmm. of it. Like just be having an open mind. But I also think our modern day lifestyles contribute to why we don't tolerate certain types of foods, whether it's. Mm-hmm chronic antibiotic use, exposure to estrogen-mimicking chemicals, the lack of high-quality sleep, and just being physically sedentary. We're not living anything at all similar to where we used to live. We just have become a little comfortable. I don't want to use, say a derogatory term. We're just becoming these human beings that are not that are going completely against the grain of the way our bodies are designed to thrive i call them flabby floppy mr softies oh i was gonna say page we're becoming little blobs (laughs) (laughs) truly i mean and it's unfortunate because that's not the way we're designed to thrive and it's so sad to me it's not until you know we get out of the united states and we're traveling with our family and we're like you don't just don't see the amount of obesity Mm. that you do here and it's so concerning because Mm -hmm. that's the norm now we just think that's normal you ever and seen those pictures of um, like the Jersey Shore from the 1970s? 1947 picture oh, it's of the people on the beach. And the, the beach is just packed with people, and everyone's and like, thin. There's no, you can't find an obese person in a in a photo of 8,000 people. Wow. Yeah, it's just. There's a photo from the 1970s, and I, I did a talk this year where I put that, and then there was a photo superimposed of like the 2010s with some very heavy people, and I took some flack on social media from no. one or two people who got triggered. And I was like, I'm just trying to, ex- yeah, I'm just trying to explain to people we are heading in the wrong direction. Like, mm. what do we need to do to course correct? Um, and on so many different levels, I think you know our modern day lifestyles are contributing. Whether it's exposure to blue light and you know sitting at night, like people just assume, oh, I just have to put the um, the the component on my iPhone or my iPad mm. or my computer. And I can keep going. Right, exactly. Like my <laughs> husband said, I don't have to wear blue blockers. It's like if you're going to be on your computer, yes, you should. Because I know I'm sensitive to blue light, mm. totally sensitive mm, to gosh, it. Gosh, I have it right next to my computer, and I most of the time I forget. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sitting there. <laughs> but I like your, you know, rule of thumb as far as what diet is good for you mm-hmm. is to see how you feel. Yep. I mean that's really the bottom line because it's 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 hard. It's, it's so hard. Even if you do a genetic test, I guess you could it could give you some glimpse of what may be good for you, but. You know, I think our body is very complex, so just uh, looking at the genes and some correlations probably doesn't tell you the full picture of what's going on in your body. So eventually, you just you know look at is everybody is everything functioning beautifully, mm. eating what you're eating. That probably is the bottom line. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, this summer, I had nutrigenomic testing done. Yeah, mm. and the first thing the woman said to me was, "Do you tolerate fatty meat?" And I was like, "No," and she said. I can explain why. Wow. And so I was so validating because wow. in my family, ribeye is king and mm. I get a lot of flack because I'm like, listen, I don't feel good if I eat a duck mm. fat fry. I mean, mm. anything, lard, towel, I really do better with plant-based fats and lean meat and fish and chicken and things like that. And mm. I, so now I feel like I can, st- I can say it's genetically predisposed. <laughs> it's not just in my head. But yeah, I think sometimes it can be, it can validate maybe the way you f- maybe connections that you're making about your relationship with food yeah. or how your body feels. Um, right. You're bringing in the modern science yes. to explain certain things. Yes. Yeah. It found, so it told me that I had a, um, a deficiency in salivary uh, enzyme analytes, yeah, which makes me more prone to insulin resistance oh. and, and, and blood sugar spikes because mm. I can't digest the carbs, yep. it, you know, the starch. 
And then, so my body cannot be primed you to produce insulin. Yeah. So by the time it's absorbed with this massive amount of, of carbohydrate, that's too late. My yeah. blood sugar is already spiked. Interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's solving some pieces yeah. of the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. I wonder if that, that sensitivity is buried under a mountain of processed food and, and sitting around for most people where they can't even relate to what it feels like to have an omelet versus the, the cereal, orange juice, toast, and uh, sugar on top. You know, like a, a smoker um, doesn't have as sensitive lungs as I do mm-hmm. when I'm breathing, you know, someone smoking uh, three doors down on a hotel balcony. I'm like, who the hell's smoking? You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, that's right, gross. one so, step at a time. Uh, yeah, that's right, one step at a time. So I guess if you could just clean up a little bit and then start to be able to assess whether fasting works for you or doesn't work for yeah. you how can you tell you're you're, just, you're buried you're underneath the avalanche that's such a good point and, and i think it really speaks to the fact that i think for most people they don't lean into how they feel they're just kind of going through the motions mm-hmm. and i think for you know those of us in this space we're really leaning into okay what's my body trying to communicate what would be you know, the uh, the beauty of the n of one is really trying to determine what works best for you your body your lifestyle I do wonder if there's a wuss factor there because I'm so sensitive to my my sleep needs. And if I don't get eight and a half to nine hours, I feel like hell and I have to take two naps, you know, if we're traveling. And I mean, I got jet lag traveling from California to Arizona last week where that that first afternoon I was like, man, I'm not feeling well. I'm getting a headache. And it's like. Um, I was that way as an athlete too because I purposefully went in that direction where I needed to assess whether this little tweak on my knee was you know, something I, I needed to watch out for super carefully every step of that eight mile run and so on. Then the next day was the right shoulder, whatever. So um, could it be that, you know, could, could we take this overboard? I think when we're talking to people that were working the night shift for 11 years and, and doing the, the triple duty. I think it remains to be seen. I'm working on that too. It's a work in progress. Yeah, I just yeah. know my jet lag is worse when I come out to the West Coast than yeah. it is when I fly east, like if I go to Europe or Africa. So like right. I, I will struggle. Like I can tell right now, like my body, like right now my body's telling me, you're not supposed to be like doing this right now. It's like thinking it's it's meal time. It's you know, we're getting close to dinner time. It's amazing. I mean, but I've only been on the West Coast for one day. Right, so. and I see these badasses that just steamroll over everything. I'm fine if I go east. I'm terrible yeah. if I go west. Like, yeah. I've been to Hawaii twice, and I don't think I'll ever go back. <laughs> just because I was so, I could not function with the jet lag. Yeah, that's a, so long, that's a lot of time zones for East Coast. It is. And I was like, you know, I don't think I need to do that again. I've twice checked it off the box. Ladies? That was a riveting conversation. <laughs> it went in so many directions. Usually I record an intro and we talk about, okay, then we talk about protein, then we talk about this, and now I'm like, all right, we talk about, a you lot. know, Tiger of Beijing's father ripping up her notes <laughs> and a 13-day fast, a new record, Guinness Book of Records, never to be broken by herself. <laughs> Thank you so much for watching, listening. It was great fun. Oh, let's give our appropriate plugs. Uh, you can find one of my podcasts called Everyday Wellness. It is available everywhere, as well as the Intermittent Fasting Podcast that I co-host with Melanie Avalon. You can find me on social media, Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore on Instagram. Be forewarned, I'm snarky on Twitter. And oh, I have yeah. a free Facebook group. I get in trouble. Free Facebook group uh, called Intermit- The Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. And, of course, my book, The Intermittent Fasting Transformation, which I would love for you to check out. 
Joy-Kong. This is going to go on the Joy-Kong podcast as well as the B-Rad podcast. And we can learn more about you from... Well, I, um, my YouTube channel, Joy Kong MD, I have a lot of educational videos mm. about uh, mostly about stem cell therapy because there's so much informa- misinformation out there and then people are so confused. Actually, even medical doctors are very confused. So it's a good resource. And um, um, I also talk a little bit about ketamine therapy, you know, a little bit about peptide therapy. So I do this, you know, kind of an integrative uh, approach in my clinic using some of the, you know, very new innovative modalities um, and then my Instagram is dr underscore joy underscore Kong and um, and um, um, that's uh, most of my uh, yeah my clinic is um, here in uplift longevity center where we um, we, we really um, put everything um, to work all these new modalities I've, I've gleaned and got excited about um, and to you know to get people over some really tough you know health challenges and also help people stay really healthy and uh, and I yes I wrote a book Tiger of Beijing and um, it's uh, in the process been made into a movie and that will be a that'll be an exciting journey so um, yeah, I'm looking at putting the all the content from the YouTube onto a podcast format so I can make this more accessible to more people. So, yeah, excited to, you know, meet amazing people like these two and then, you know, help uh, bringing more goodness to the world. Thank you, everybody. I'm pleased to present B-Rad Grass-Fed Whey Protein Isolate Superfuel, the absolute highest quality all-natural protein supplement infused with creatine that delivers everything you need to optimize your appetite for fat loss, recover quickly from workouts, and build and maintain lean muscle mass, the single most important attribute for aging gracefully. Our protein comes directly from small family farms in America's dairy land of Wisconsin. It's cold processed and micro-filtered for maximum bioavailability and digestibility. So please don't mess with the many cheap commodity protein supplements that are ineffective, inferior, less pure, and often contain junk sweeteners, especially the plant-based offerings that are vastly less bioavailable than the gold standard of protein supplements that's whey protein isolate. Whether you're in your peak athletic years looking to grow and recover or in the older age groups trying to delay aging and decline, whey and creatine are widely agreed to be the most critical and effective supplements to take for the rest of your life. You can easily stir the super fuel in water or make a delicious smoothie every day. I'm certain that you're going to love the pleasant, light, natural vanilla bean and cocoa bean flavors. So try some on Amazon today. It's a huge hit with dozens of five-star reviews. Or you can order direct from bradnutrition.com with our buy three, get one free, and make the super fuel a centerpiece of your daily routine. Thank you for listening to the show. I love sharing the experience with you and greatly appreciate your support. Please email podcast at bradventures.com with feedback, suggestions, and questions for the Q&A shows. Subscribe to our email list at bradkerns.com for a weekly blast about the published episodes and a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter edition 
with informative articles and practical tips for all aspects of healthy living. You can also download several awesome free ebooks when you subscribe to the email list. And if you could go to the trouble to leave a five or five star review with Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the shows, that would be super incredibly awesome. It helps raise the profile of the BRAD podcast and attract new listeners. And did you know that you can share a show with a friend or loved one by just hitting a few buttons in your player and firing off a text message? My awesome podcast player called Overcast allows you to actually record a soundbite excerpt from the episode you're listening to and fire it off with a quick text message. Thank you so much for spreading the word. And remember, be rad.